This episode of the APZ Football Podcast is sponsored by Archer Knight. If you're looking for analysis and insight on oil and gas or renewables, Archer Knight can help your company find focus in a rapidly developing sector. Global energy sector specialists based in Aberdeen, Archer Knight provide impartial market intelligence and consultancy support. Their goal is helping you deliver on your last mile, freeing you up to secure the most profitable business opportunities. Find out more at www.archernight.com. It's Wednesday, and you know what that means. Welcome to episode 12 of the ABZ Football Podcast. I'm Gary Scott, and joining me, as always this week, it's Graeme Steele and Gavin Baxter. How's it going, guys? Fine, thank you. Yeah, I don't know if like this is maybe just like euphoria from the Euros that hasn't quite worn off yet, or if it's just the respite from not having to watch Aberdeen for two weeks, but looking forward to the international break. We start things off this week with our review of the Dons 2-1 defeat at the hands of Celtic and we'll provide our, our thoughts on just where we think we are. Now, after another defeat, leaves the Dons with no wins in nine games as we head into the aforementioned international break. We'll then turn our attention to look at the women's team and their 3-2 reverse against Hearts in the SWPL1. And to round off part one of the show in the absence of a game for the young team, we'll take a look at how our young prospects got on who are out on loan. And for the second half, we're delighted to bring Ali Begg off the bench as we discuss his love of the Dons, his views on how things are going under the stewardship of Stephen Glass. And we'll discuss Ali's new book, The Aberdeen European Nights, which is due for release on the 21st of October. But first, Aberdeen 1, Celtic 2, Petodre Stadium, SPFL Premiership, the 3rd of October, 2021. Manager Stephen Glass making three changes to his starting lineup with Austin Samuels and Matty Longstaff coming in for the injured Ryan Hedges and suspended Teddy Jenks. And Glass followed this up with a big call with Gary Woods making his first start of the season in goals, replacing Joe Lewis. And it was Celtic who were out the traps quickly as they sought their first away win in the league since February, beat on squandering a header from close range after a Turnbull corner. And Celtic soon found their opener in 11 minutes. A quick throw in on the right flank left Jack McKenzie horribly exposed. The overlapping Turnbull floating a decent ball into the box that evaded Bates and Kyogo Furuhashi chested the ball past a stranded Gary Woods. The Dons responded relatively positively. A couple of snatched opportunities left Hart with easy stops from Ferguson and Ramsey and an effort from Samuels trundled past the post. But the Dons were struggling to get to grips with when to pass and sit off a Celtic backline who were happy to play the ball around in their own penalty box. Celtic nearly made it too, Jota taking some time out from fouling Calvin Ramsey cut inside the Dons full back and smashed a fine effort that clipped Gary Woods' bar on its way over. The Dons forced some pressure towards the end of the half from a number of corners that were awarded in quick succession as the Celtic backline began to show signs of buckling. A repeat of last week at St Mirren saw a Ramsey corner floated in from the left, Brown blocking a couple of Celtic defenders and the ball fell to Ramirez, whose tame effort was sent into the ground before Joe Hart flapped at it and touched the ball onto the bar and out for another corner. And into the second half, and it was Aberdeen who were much improved in their tempo and pace of play and forced an equaliser that was well-deserved. Another Ramsey corner, this time from the right, found the shoulder of Lewis Ferguson, and the ball seemed to take an age to loop in over the head of Adam Montgomery stationed on the line. 
it was nearly 2-1 to Aberdeen moments later, another Ramsey corner, this time found Scott Brown and his header was parried by Hart back into the danger area, but no Aberdeen player was able to convert the rebound. Brown himself was then withdrawn on 72 minutes to be replaced by Dylan McGeech, with Conor McLennan taking the field for Austin Samuel six minutes later, and it was Aberdeen who nearly forced a second, a raking cross-field pass by McCrory, found Johnny Hayes in space on the right flank, and his low strike was spilled by Hart, but the ball just failed to come down quick enough to allow Ramirez to nod into an empty net, and the ball was cleared. And at that point, Celtic began to come more and more into the game as the Dons looked to tire and began to fall into much deeper defensive positions. Ramsey moving infield a couple of yards too much, allowing Celtic to develop an overlap on the left side as Rogic slipped to Montgomery, who had a simple task of knocking the ball across the six-yard box for Jota to tap in, having got the run on Jack McKenzie. Dean Campbell replacing Max Longstaff with a couple of minutes to go as Aberdeen failed to force any real attempt to get an equaliser. A relieved Ange Postacoglu's side pick up their first away win of the campaign. That sees Celtic remain in sixth, but now only six points off the summit. Where does Aberdeen are left sitting in ninth spot on eight points with four defeats on the spin in the Premiership? Gents, your thoughts? Well, I'll state the obvious. That's not good enough. That's yet another defeat. Um, it's a slightly odd feeling that we were discussing amongst three of us as we left. It did feel like we maybe could have got a point out of that game. You know, it was a little bit better than maybe some of the previous performances, but ultimately, yeah, another defeat. And I, I realise people might be listening saying, well, generally you'd expect to lose to Celtic. And I know that's kind of defeatist, but that, that would normally be my point of view. But you look at the sort of state they're in this season, some of the teams that have taken points off them, it's kind of classic Aberdeen that we can't. Yeah, and especially when you think that we get the equaliser and we're in the ascendancy and you know, with the way Celtic have been on the road, especially this season, you'd expect us to to really put more pressure on them. And instead we carried on for like maybe 10, 15 minutes more, but then we um kind of dropped off back into sort of familiar routines, which uh made the the winning goal ultimately um yeah, like I said, depressingly inevitable. Yeah, like you say, it's four four games lost since the international break. So this section of the season it's been unmitigated disaster there's no other way of putting it yeah no absolutely not great and I guess let's try and break the game down a little bit into some chunks I think first half for me I, th- I thought we were pretty dreadful across the piece um, if I'm being honest just never really looked like we kind of got to grips with what we were going to do in terms of pressing Celtic there was too many times I thought that players went off on a press by themselves and no one else was joining in with them and guys were you know Christian Ramirez I think on a few occasions started off in a press all by himself but with a huge gap left between himself and the midfield players which made it really easy for Celtic to actually end up playing out at the back yeah that, that's a good point and it's, it's annoying that our players couldn't see this because there were times where the, yeah the, the Celtic defenders looking for uh, to play out there's not an obvious ball if everyone basically sort of holds the line if you like uh, and they're kind of knocking about each other or they're starting to get a bit pressured and then as soon as someone breaks free they're, they're quick enough to spot that, right, that's the gap. A couple of passes, you know, they're in the midfield almost unchallenged. And then we're we're, we're all out of shape and we're, we're chasing it again. It's really frustrating because although they were intent on playing it out, you know, even with getting heart involved and things like that, the odd time where we did all push up as a unit kind of caused chaos at the back there. And it's not like these guys were getting pressured and still coming away with the ball, they're getting pressured and just giving it straight back to us. And 
I don't know what it is. If it's the manager didn't see it, can't get his message across, the players aren't smart enough to realise that or don't listen or whatever combination it is. But I did feel like the, we, we could have handled their style better. And by that, I mean, if we had pressured as a unit, you know, so if the whole team pushes up, and I appreciate if we all push up, you maybe do run the risk of a ball over the top and someone's got acres of space to run into. But the way, though, the Celtic defenders kind of were with the ball, I didn't really feel like too big a risk because I didn't really feel like they were going to play their way out with some intricate passing. They were just going to shell it or put it to touch. Yeah, we we just didn't really make the most of that. Um, I, I don't know, it's, just, it's, another, it's another game goes by where I don't see the obvious progression to what we are trying to achieve. Yeah, I mean, I'll talk about what we were like in possession in a minute, but I'm, I've been thinking about like games where we've pressed Celtic very well, and the, the one that comes to mind is always the cup final um, that we ultimately lost 2-1. That seemed to be the one day we really got it right, and I remember the big thing that day was Kenny McLean triggered the press and everyone moved as a unit, like you say, Steele. This one, I mean, Hayes, Samuel, I, mean, I, I, can get, I get why they did it, and I don't know if this is just indiscipline on their part or if this is something they've been told but anytime they would press a Celtic either a midfielder or wing back moves into that free space and time and time again you saw it spaces and 2v1s being created on our fullbacks and I think we all saw it I think people around us could see it the one man in the stadium didn't appear to be able to see it was Stephen Glass because it was never addressed for the entire game See, I'm not sure if I agree necessarily that the manager didn't spot it. I think... It wasn't addressed for, for the entire first half. But this is the thing. I think this is what I keep going back to again, though, is I think it's execution by players on the pitch is where the problem is. Because you, you can listen to Stephen Glass, and he did it last week in, in the Graham Hunter interview as well, about managers will like to come out and say, my team press, my team press all the time, and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of it's nonsense. A lot of teams don't do that. They'll press when the time's right to press. But the thing that Glass was talking about quite eloquently about that was about the idea about the press is all very well but it needs to be done properly and the team has to understand that if this guy goes I need to go to this position here I need to do this I need to do that and it's about knowing the time to trigger the press and you're right about that Gav the Scottish Cup final where Kenny McLean was the guy who triggered the press was a is, is a great example of this because it felt to me a little bit on Sunday that play there was a couple of occasions where Celtic were playing about with the ball in the kind of like penalty box area. And the team just decided they were going to sit. They weren't going to try and press. They were just going to stand back and, and, and let them do whatever they were doing. And you could hear the crowd starting to get antsy with it. And it was almost as though certain players, and you talked about Hayes and you talked about Samuels as the two, kind of reacted to it, just decided they were going to go and do something. But without anyone else actually being like, well, actually, we weren't actually going to trigger the press right now. I wasn't expecting that to happen right now. And guys weren't reacting to it. I don't know. I'm not entirely convinced it's the manager's issue there if guys just decide to go and do it. And you could see at the graphic that Gary Mulraney did, which showed Ramirez is pressing, where too often he would go and engage the centre backs too early. And there was no one then following up behind from the midfield. And the gap between our midfield and attack was just it's almost half a pitch at some points. What I would say to that is there then that in the moment, that's where either the manager or Scott Brown, who's obviously part of the coaching staff, is on the pitch needs to be taking these guys aside and saying that wasn't the plan and I, it happened time and time again so that's what makes me think that either yeah 
it was indiscipline. And if that's not being addressed at the time, then that's a fault of communication. And if it was in fact a plan, then as you say, the players in the middle didn't seem to have any clue of what to do. You know, if Samuels moves or Hayes moves, no one seemed to know like, okay, well, that's now your space to move into. Or maybe that's the merit of like the old Derek McInnes um, kind of man for man thing. You just kind of say, okay, well, the midfield three, you're going to stick with your your guy. It just, yeah, time and time again, left too open, too exposed. And ultimately that's what the first goal comes from. Yeah, the first goal comes from that overlap on the right-hand side. I think we get done on two occasions there. Obviously one... Jack McKenzie kind of makes a relative, doesn't doesn't connect with the ball well and it, it drifts out for a throw-in. And while he's out of position, I think it's Turnbull takes a very quick throw-in, gets the ball not, knocked back into him and he's already created the overlap and swings it in. On that one, when I watch it back, I'm really disappointed with Ross McCrory actually there because when you watch the replay back from the camera that's, I think, above the kind of Celtic support area just in the gantry, there's a moment where the throw-in comes in and you see McKenzie goes to, goes to challenge the guy who's receiving the, the throw-in. He then flicks it around the corner to Turnbull. And there's a chance there for McCrory. McCrory's kind of standing on the corner of the of the 18-yard line when this all begins. He's not marking anyone in the box. There's no one really around him at that point. He probably has a chance to actually go out and engage Turnbull, I think. And instead, he chooses to drift back into the center of the box. And the ball just bypasses him. And it's, and it's Bates doesn't cover himself in glory either, I don't think, with his attempt to clear the header. It's a pretty easy finish for uh, Furuhashi. But we get done. I mean, Glass talked about the fact that we'd, he'd warned the players all week about the fact that Celtic liked to take quick throw-ins and all that kind of good stuff. That's fine, but it just felt we just didn't react to it. And I've seen a few people complaining and saying that, oh, Jack McKenzie, if he had more experience, he would have held on to the ball and all that kind of stuff. When you actually watch it back again, it's because he takes a bit of a, he takes a poor touch. It's not like he has an opportunity to necessarily hold on to the ball and keep it away from Turnbull. And he's at a stretch. It's not like he can just launch into the south stand as well and hope it's going to take a while for it to come down and everyone resets. I think in that scenario, what's probably more frustrating is if the manager has told them this is something they're going to do, watch out for it. And presumably, you know, he didn't just tell them five minutes before kickoff. It's something that you have factored into the, the week's preparations and we still get caught out by it. That's, you know... <laughs> Yeah, and that probably goes back to when I mean, we're, we're saying, no, the manager's not doing this, the manager's not doing that. Obviously, we don't know what he's doing or not doing. But in that scenario, he clearly is aware of what to watch out for. And people, you know, kind of goes back to what we've been saying all season, people kind of not doing their job. And the, the McCrory point, don't know if that's, you know, there's debate around, if that's not his natural position, maybe he's just not quite in that mindset of, I know what's about to happen here. I could nick in and get that. And he's maybe a bit more cautious and he thinks, well, well, if I hang around in the box, you know, I'm, I'm where I'm supposed to be. I think the, yeah, that, that's all fair. And going back to the, the sort of the pressing piece, I think it's probably fair to say it's players maybe not doing or being sure what they're supposed to do. It's unlikely that if myself with absolutely zero tactical awareness can see something that the manager has not seeing that if players are not doing what they're told, then that is a worrying issue in whether that's things behind the scenes or whether they're just not quite getting it. Um, I suppose you're right. It's easy to pick on the manager, but if people aren't executing what he wants them to do, then yeah, that, that that's pretty tricky. So yeah, d- disappointing. And if it's something the glass has highlighted and we, we still uh, mess up, that's, Pretty embarrassing for everyone. 
yeah, and you come back to um, players not doing their job, I think, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, David Bates, much to uh, my, not surprised, but I just don't re- remember, but yeah, David Bates is massive. And the ball goes over his head and hits Furuhashi like a yard away from him in the chest. So David Bates can certainly, it's not like it's over his head. I think he takes his eye off the ball. And yeah, if he's in a better position, he can certainly handle that a lot better than he actually does. And I mean, yeah, it's a a goal. It's 1-0 and here we go again. Is there a question mark at the first goal as well about Gary Woods? For me, that ball's flashed into the six-yard line. Uh, You know, should he be coming out and claiming that? It's not a height that a keeper can't come and claim. I think you can make that argument, but personally, you can make that argument depending on which side of the fence you sit on, Woods or Lewis. From my point of view, sort of take the keeper out of the equation, it's disappointing that yet again, it's a relatively basic ball into the box and it's a surprise to our defenders that a ball comes in and they just can't get their head on it. Uh, yeah, maybe he could have come out. I actually don't, you know, I'm not so sure that was the difference. I think Bates should have done a lot better with that because we, we considered a couple of goals like that this season. It was one with Gallagher where the ball just sails over his head and it's a surprise that you know, there's a member of the opposition right behind him uh, who's anticipated it. So I, I think that's more down to take the keepers out of the equation, whether it's Lewis or Woods. We just don't seem, seem to be able to defend any sort of ball into our box. Watching it now, um, it's flashed in with a good amount of pace. The starting position you could probably take into question. But um, yeah, again, I think I'd be more focused on what, uh, what David Bates is doing rather than the goalkeeper here. It's a bit of an odd game through all round, isn't it? Because I kind of felt the first half was a bit of a, I don't know, I didn't really feel there was much in the game on either side. Obviously, Jota hits the bar for Celtic, but after Celtic go one up, I didn't really feel at any point though they kind of, you know, cut us open or, or were particularly threatening. At the same time, I didn't think we were particularly threatening. Um, it was two teams, I think, Gav, you touched on it um, on Twitter during the, uh, after the game. It was two teams who looked really devoid of confidence and really struggled to find their way through whatever it is they're being asked to do by their respective managers. Yeah, I mean, whether it's Celtic or Rangers, you go 1-0 one, one down with after about 10 minutes, you're expecting the floodgates to open. And, you know, they looked... The front three, I thought, looked quite handy. And, like I say, they, they did continue to expose our defensive deficiencies. But at the same time, like you say, it's probably that long-range effort from, um, from Jota, and I can't remember much else going on. So, yeah, I mean, it's not as though they were cutting us open at will which is, again, makes it for a frustrating result. Um, and I thought, I thought we did grow into the game. Um, I don't remember, I don't remember exactly what it was that triggered that, but, you know, we just seemed to suddenly just get a bit more of our, bit of a foot on the ball and just get things into, like, wide positions. And Austin Samuels, again, you know, he's very direct. He's very fast. I mean, it's, it's you know, he's he was causing issues for them. And, you know, we managed to uh, make ourselves a chance to the... Uh, Again, I don't know how teams are not seeing this one. Again, we see it so clearly when Scott Brown is, you know, I remember saying to you, oh, the block's coming and it happens. And uh, Ramirez, I think, should do better with his uh, with his effort. I think it's a very tame effort when he could have, I don't think it's unreasonable to say he probably could have put his laces through it and, you know, really given either Joe Hart something to think about or, you know, you're going to get a deflection with so many bodies and it could end up in the net. Yeah, I mean, Joe Hart does his best to try and stick it in um, with what he does. One thing I'm going to say, I really admire the fact that Joe Hart swaggers around the pitch, acting like he's like cock of the walk, when he's a truly terrible goalkeeper. It's the first time I have seen Joe Hart play, and 
appreciate that's only one game he has played for a number of years, but I'm not quite understanding how he's had the career he's had. Uh, if if Aberdeen are rattling you, then I don't really understand. Or if this Aberdeen are rattling you, I don't, I don't understand how you've achieved what you've achieved in the game. You say that, I understand the career he's had like the last five years, but no, it's, it's before that I'm not quite understanding. I mean, so, you know, second half, I think we come out and I think we're much improved. I, I, I've seen a lot of people as well saying that we were really, really garbage in the first half. And I'm not entirely sure I buy that. I think the first 15, 20 minutes, we were poor and we weren't at it. We, we had problems getting the press right and there were difficulties with it. But I, I never felt we were out of the game. There were squaffed attempts. There were tame attempts at goal. I thought Samuels turned their fullbacks a couple, a couple of times. We had some set plays, which caused some problems for Celtic. I don't think it was necessarily as bad as people were making out. There was some, in my, for my taste, I know, some aimless shelling of the ball, which you know maybe is just symptomatic of a defence that isn't playing with a great deal of confidence and they are just wanting to, to get rid of it. Because in general, I, I wouldn't say we've been prone to that this season, if we have gone back to front, it's generally been when Samuel's been on the pitch and it's one down the channel. And that's actually worked out quite well for us. I just felt first half, there were, there were a few balls where we were just shelling it up and we just don't have, we don't have the players for that. I mean, you've only got, that's not Ramirez's game at all. And that ball, in my opinion, is not particularly effective if you've literally got one player up front because they're going to have at least two defenders to, to deal with that so yeah maybe that maybe that was not really a strategy such it was just guys want a bit of a breather um, so yeah the, the first half wasn't great but I don't think I could go as far as to say I mean we've seen some garbage this season I wouldn't put that up there in my opinion it's kind of hard to put it in perspective because I didn't think Celtic were up to much no they weren't and this is part of the problem is that that's probably the worst Celtic team I've seen in a very long time I mean I saw some people try to compare them to the Ronnie Delia side I think the Ronnie Delia side wipes the floor with with that Celtic team. I, I'd be going back to kind of early 90s for how bad, until I've seen a, a Celtic team as bad as what they were like at the weekend. And I saw somebody make quite a good point about what makes that result even more frustrating and more worrying in a way is that Celtic actually gave us opportunities in that game with the way they were playing and we still couldn't capitalise on it. You know, we've got a really, really tough run of fixtures coming up after the international break. You know, are, are other teams up at the top end of the league going to be as open as Celtic were? Probably not. Um, they're going to be more clinical, I'd imagine. And they're going to be harder to, to break down, one would think. So it feels like a real missed opportunity. Uh, yeah, I would say so. A, a poor Celtic team. Uh, and I think we mentioned this a week or two ago and it's ended a bit silly. The, the game kind of went the way I thought it might do, as in it's, a, it's an open Celtic team. And that kind of suited us as in we did create chances mainly because they gave us the chances versus you know, the St. Johnston game where they came up to shut up shop and we've got absolutely nothing in terms of creativity. So it was an opportunity to get some points on the board just from the point of view of it wasn't a team we had to break down because they were absolutely not set up to be uh, difficult to beat. They were kind of going the other way of we can't defend, but we'll outscore you. And again, go back to the point I made earlier, other teams have taken points off them this season. So it's disappointing that we don't do it. I mean, looking just, I guess, through the, through the actual lineup as well. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of focus this season has been people talking about how we can't defend or we can't attack. Everyone's been talking about those two ends of the park. 
But it felt to me at the weekend that our midfield area was just really found wanting again. And I don't feel that necessarily the midfield area has been getting quite the attention it deserves, probably because we're conceding so many and not scoring enough. But I wonder if part of that is a symptom of what our midfield's like at the moment. I, I, I personally thought that Brown, neither of Brown, Longstaff or Ferguson had a particularly good game at the weekend. For me, it's back to that situation again where you've got three guys who are all very similar in terms of what they want to do as footballers and they're being asked to do different things and not necessarily doing it. With those three starting the weekend, you're probably expecting a bit more, eh? Yeah, I would agree with that. You're right, we, we've kind of glossed over it ourselves, but you know, just simplistically, whether you're attacking or defending, generally speaking, everything's going through the midfield. So if we're shipping goals, that's kind of your first line of defence. And I don't really, yeah, they're not really offering a great deal in terms of support for uh, the guys playing up front. So I think that is a good point. It was a bit disappointing on Sunday. And it's kind of like we said before, we're not, you know, there's not really any creativity in there, but it's not really like we're bullying teams either. You know, we're not we're not one or the other. I'd be quite content with a midfield that maybe wasn't particularly creative, but was virtually impossible to get through. That, that'd be fine with me because that gives you a, a base to build from. Whereas it just kind of feels like we're a bit soft everywhere. I don't want to sit here and be overly critical of one person, but like Matty Longstaff, I don't know what age he is, but he's got first team premiership experience. And if you told me that he was a premiership, let me put this, if you told me that one of the Aberdeen players was a premiership player on loan, I wouldn't be picking Matty Longstaff out. I, and I, yeah, I think again, I just, I, I feel like his best position would be what Scott Brown does almost. But then like, obviously Scott Brown's, going to do that role so then we have to crowbar him in somewhere else and yeah it's just it's not it's it's that imbalance that we've talked about a lot this season um where yeah it's guys doing jobs that i just i don't think they're actually capable of doing missing ryan hedges at the weekend was also a massive miss again he's he's literally our only creative outlet in the entire squad i think that can link the play between midfield and attack and i actually thought dylan mcgeek actually did quite well when he came on the pitch on on sunday i thought that he was getting around the pitch well. I thought he was trying to get his foot on the ball. I thought he was trying to play passes. It's that thing. It's like he comes on and we concede a few minutes later. And so everyone will automatically the point and say, well, taking Brown off has caused that. But I actually thought McGee looked okay in there. And it's one of those, you're right, Gav. It's like Brown is effectively probably undroppable in the eyes of the management and the, the, the club because he's come in on whatever age, wages he's on. He's got the reputation. Now, whether you think that's the right thing or the wrong thing, for me, I kind of feel that I was disappointed with the way that we, we fell apart against St Mirren last week when we went down to 10 men. That's a situation where I expect a guy like Scott Brown to be stepping up to the plate and I didn't really see any of it. Gav, you made a good point early on about, well, Scott Brown's effectively the, the coaching team's representative on the pitch at the moment. When the press wasn't working, he should be kind of pulling rank about, well, getting it right, getting it, getting it sorted out on the pitch. I did see him at one point telling Jack McKenzie he had, that Jack McKenzie had to get Austin Samuels told to start tracking back a bit more. And that's fine, but at the same time, I'm like, well, why don't you do it, Brown? You're meant to be the captain. And I'm not picking on Scott Brown or anything like that. I just feel that for what we've bought and for what we should expect to see, even if his legs have gone, I'd expect to see more from him from a kind of leadership slash captain perspective. Yeah, I think it's fair to say maybe it wasn't as influential as we we'd hoped. Going back to your, your earlier point about Hedges, I feel like we 
we need to find a way to play without him. And we have done most of the season, but he's he's just not available and can't be relied on, in my opinion. You know, he's injured. I don't think he's got any intention of staying. So we'll be surprised if he's maybe even here past January. So although you're absolutely right when he's in there, it does feel like a real breath of fresh air. And what a difference. I feel we've got to we've got to find a way to get that somehow. And it's not Ryan Hedges, because I just don't see how he's going to feature much between now and the end of the year. And if he's still here, looking at his injury record, unless there's an incredible turnaround, I just don't really want to be talking about in you know, four or five months' time. Oh, wasn't that great last week when Hedges played for 90 minutes, but now he's out again. Yeah, I think as soon as we hear the language, um, keeping your options open, you know it's 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 ties. So yeah, it's it's again it's a situation where we have to resolve it. And the problem, and I, I think this kind of plays a part in ultimately the winning goal for Celtic is that Calvin Ramsey has been asked to do an awful lot of running to be our one creative uh, element. And you saw at the end, he's out on his feet. He's a 17 year old, just turned 18. He's still physically not mature. And it's only natural that he's just he's going to tire um, as games go on, especially high, high intensity, high pressure games like this. I don't, I think Steele, you mentioned that maybe we should consider moving Ramsey further up the pitch instead. But that begs the question of, well, what do you do instead of Calvin Ramsey at right back? Yeah, I, I absolutely. It was kind of half flippant, and then I thought he is an attacking outlet, so it would make sense theoretically to have him doing less running. So having him further up the pitch, it means he's basically not out on his feet with sort of five, ten minutes to go. But you're absolutely right. You you may or may not solve one problem, which is the creativity, but you'll absolutely create another one, which is the defensive position, unless you you know do something with the the shape. For example, in terms of how you set up the defence, it just feels like it's the last couple of games where it's obvious that he's been out on his feet. He doesn't get replaced, or he doesn't kind of get cover, and that's a couple of goals down his side that we've conceded. And you know, you'd probably say, yeah, he's at fault because he should have been there, but he's not at fault through lack of effort. He's just he's just done in. I mean, I think we can almost move the conversation on a little bit here now into just talking about, obviously, we're way ahead in the second international break of the season. When we when we came out of, in, in the first international break, I think everyone agreed that was, it came at a good time for us. I think it came just after the Ross County draw home. It felt like we'd kind of just had a massive run of games uh, with Europe and everything involved. The team were just out on their feet. We needed a bit of time to regroup, get time in the training ground and all that kind of good stuff. And you kind of thought, excellent. There's been some green shoots. There's been some real positive stuff in that opening phase. And Gav, you touched on it on. We're now four league games. Hence, after that international break, we've lost all four of them. Where are we? Where are we going at the moment? Where do you think we're heading to? I mean, the, the run of fixtures after the international break are not great. Um, obviously, we, we head to Dens Park on the, for the first of those games. So Dundee, I think, are still looking for their first win of the season. So Aberdeen, come on down. Then we're at home at Hibs, away to Rangers, at home at Hearts. That's a Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday run. Home at Motherwell, who are, who are going all right at the moment, notwithstanding they, they, they were beating at Hearts at the weekend. Away to Dundee United on the 20th of November. United are going well just now. Away to Celtic. A home at Livingston, a home at St Mirren, away at St Johnson, away to Hibs. That takes you up to Christmas. 
like everyone keeps on talking about the November run, like up to Christmas. And then even then the 29th of December we're home at Rangers. It's a tough run to the new year, to be frank. It's uh, it's not a run of fixtures where you can identify a group of games and say, well, that's a that's a point when you can go ahead and take X amount of points and you'll dig yourself out of trouble. I mean, truthfully, right now, I don't trust us to beat anyone. Never mind back-to-back wins or anything like that. Um, where are we? Ninth. Where are we going? Well, yeah, we're ninth. We're probably lucky to be ninth. I don't know what the difference is between us and tenth, but, you know. Four points. It's it's basically the it's basically the three points that um the strike check gifted us at Amundville. So if that doesn't happen, then what we're two we're two points off tenth. So um yeah, I mean we're going nowhere. That's that's I I, I can't take any positives out of this last four games at all, I'm afraid to say. And I don't know if this is maybe more reflective of just the fact it was Celtic and their front three are all quite quick. But yeah, like we told about the style of play and that we're going to, well, I mean, I think he's gone back on his word a little bit as far as like creating a sense of ambiguity of what the style of play meant. But he said that it's a team that people want to come and watch. And I think it's, we all interpreted that and we all saw from the end of last season that meant a team that played out from the back against Celtic, playing out from the back meant Gary Woods, David Bates, David Bates, Gary Woods, Gary Woods, Ross McCrory, Ross McCrory, shell it with your left peg upfield. And at that point, I'm kind of thinking to myself, well, why don't we just like take four or five steps out of that and just shell it? Uh, at which point then that comes to the conversation about um, the decision to drop Joe Lewis and bring Gary Woods in. It's one of these for me. I, I, Joe Lewis has had a, a shocking couple of weeks and he's not had a great run of form probably for the last couple of years. Right, it's probably fair to say, and and obviously we'll talk about it a bit more with Ali Beg later on in the show. I don't know if the captaincy weighed a bit too heavy on him. There was a definitely a drop off in form after he was made captain. I don't think anyone can necessarily to disagree with that. But on the whole, I still felt that Joe Lewis was in our league a reasonably solid goalkeeper. I admit this season, I think I've gone into games now expecting one or two Joe Lewis mistakes which I don't think I ever did before. But I kind of feel, I, th- I think I spoke about this on one of our episodes before. I almost feel like it's that discussion that happened when Brendan Rodgers took over at Celtic and he took De Vries from Swansea, who he'd played, but who he'd used, because he had the view that Craig Gordon couldn't play with the ball at his feet. And De Vries came in for like, I don't know, six or seven games or something. And then they very quickly went, well, okay, he can knock the ball about with his feet, but he's not actually fucking any good at stopping shots. And before you knew it, Craig Gordon was put back in the sticks again. And Celtic either worked with Craig Gordon to try and at least make him passable with the ball at his feet, or they decided to adapt the way they were playing. They'd make it easier for Craig Gordon to be there. Like, for me, I mean, I don't know. Everyone talks about how great Gary was distribution is way better than Drew Lewis's. I saw none of that on Sunday. There was nothing that made me go great, he's, he's breaking a press by Celtic because he's knocking up and over the top of them and finding cute little diagonals to the wing or anything like that. It was a, a lot of it was aimless punts up the park as far as I could see, or, or short passes, which even Lewis could do. I don't know. I, 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 I don't think... I heard a guy talking about behind me, and if it was you, fair play, because you're absolutely right about this. Is Gary was really good enough to be Aberdeen Football Club's number one. 
I don't think he is. I think, um, I don't know how Steele feels, but I think I tend to agree that quite simply, Joe Lewis, yeah, he's, he's not proficient with the ball at his feet. And that's, you know, you don't need to have your A license to see that. But um, when it comes to some of his parts as a goalkeeper, he is, I would take Joe Lewis over Gary Woods every day of the week, twice on Sunday. Joe Lewis, in my opinion, is a very good goalkeeper who's unfortunately not been playing particularly well. So you would hope and you would back him to get back to that standard. Whether he's any good with the ball at his feet and whether Gary Woods is better or worse is kind of academic. Neither of them are great. And if the manager's intent on playing away with the keepers he's got, we're just going to get ourselves into trouble because it's pretty apparent to me that if he wants a goalkeeper that can play football, we don't have that. And that's not a criticism of Gary Woods or Joe Lewis. Very few goalkeepers, in my opinion, can actually fulfil that role you know, consistently and do it well. So if he's putting guys in a position and they can't do the job, that's down to the manager. He's going to have to figure out a different way of playing out. And you you touched on it earlier. If, we're, if, we're just, if the playing from the back is the keeper to the defence, to the keeper to McCrory's weaker foot, well, I could do that. I can play a five-yard pass to McCrory and he can shell it up the pitch. You know, you don't have to be a footballing goalkeeper. I'd rather have a decent shot stopper in there. Graham, I played five sides with you for three years. You cannot play a five-yard pass. I can melt it. <laughs> <laughs> you can be Ross McCrory. Maybe not with the left peg, though. <laughs> no, definitely not. But like, we touched on it as well. I can't remember which one of you was talked about earlier on. You know, I kind of tend to agree about the Calvin Ramsey thing. Maybe actually moving him further up the park a little bit. And I don't know. I've seen it again talked about this uh, over the last few days. I think, again, one of us touched on it in one of the episodes a couple of weeks ago. To me, the squad feels naturally like it It has a three-at-the-back feel to it. I don't know what your guys' view about the Bates and McCrory partnership is at the moment. I've never actually talked about it with either of the two of you. For me, I think it needs a bit of time to develop. I think people who are expecting they're going to be the second coming of Miller and McLeish after, what is it, well, four weeks. I get four league games since Bates made his debut. Three games where they've both started together. It's not enough time for them to develop any sort of understanding. Bates looked a bit ropey, I thought, at the weekend, which isn't great. And I didn't think his, his distribution was particularly good either, which, again, is disappointing because that's what we were expected to believe. I actually think, and I'm probably going to get slaughtered for this, I actually think Ross McCrory's growing into the role as a centre-half. I have to uh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm about to say this, but I think he's culpable for the goal, the second goal. Um, he gets, I've seen a still image from uh, the, the moment that, is it Rogic plays the pass to Montgomery? Rogic plays it, yeah. And McCrory's like, drawn to the ball and just leaves his position, which ultimately is kind of where the goal is scored from. And I don't know if that, I don't know if David Bates and McCrory would have played centre-back at Rangers together. Probably not that much. McCrory wouldn't have done. I think he played centre-back for them a couple of times. But, um, but anyway, that's, that's neither here nor there. I mean... If it's just a lack of understanding that if someone goes, then the other one drops back and I don't know. But um, but yeah, actually, on the whole, I don't can't really think of many goals we've conceded where I'm pointing the finger at Ross McCrory. And yeah, I would tend to agree. Although, in saying all that, we kind of keep getting told that one of the big reasons he's there is for his ability with the ball at his feet. And, well, that's null and void if, if, his, if, his, uh, if his purpose is just to shell it long to Austin Samuels with his left peg. The difficulty, uh, one of the difficulties I think for the defence is there's not, in my opinion, an experienced defender 
in there to kind of, you know, back in the day when you had Anderson who sort of could marshal the defence and if you had someone younger and inexperienced next to him, you can tell him, you know, you're going for the ball or whatever it may be. You've got McCrory learning the role. You've got Bates, who's relatively, well, he's not a young player anymore, but I don't know actually number of games he's played and experience. And is he used to being the junior member in that setup? So the two of them are maybe kind of, well, do I tell him or does he tell me? They're maybe not too sure. And then you've got Jack McKenzie, Calvin Ramsey, who are absolutely just learning the game. So there's not really anyone in that defensive four, in my opinion, that is just sort of taking charge of the situation. And I thought Gallagher might have been a bit more of that kind of player. But, you know, for, for whatever reason, he's not getting in the team. And to be fair, the couple of times he has been in the team, he's not really offered anything over and above the debates and McCrory partnership that, that I've seen to date. So I just think maybe there's a little lack of experience and leadership in that defence. And that's not really picking on those individual players. It's just the stages they're, they're at in their careers. The Gallagher signing just becomes more baffling with every passing game that doesn't play. I had to just check this to make sure. So Stephen Glass was appointed manager on the 23rd of March and Gallagher signed his pre-contract on so he signed his pre-contract on the 6th of May so I think it's reasonable to say that Glass certainly approved the transfer you know I think we all had our theory that maybe this was a McInnes deal that that went through but no I mean Glass had been in the door for six weeks by that point so it comes back to recruitment I just think it's uh, been lacking um, for my money I've not been impressed with Gallagher at all whenever he's played I don't think a Celtic game would have been the game for him to ex- excel and yeah, that brings that just brings back to the question of why are we spending presumably a pretty good wedge of money on this guy to just you know sit on the bench and eat monster munch. The only thing I will say, if those timings are accurate, and obviously if you find them, I'm sure they are, you're right. Because even if something had been agreed with the previous management team, you just do the dirty, you bail out and say sorry, everything's changed. You know, we had a gentleman's agreement, whatever it may be, but we haven't signed anything so tough. So you assume that he was happy with him careful talking about gentleman's agreement you'll have Lewis Ferguson's dad on us all I was going to say around the signing and we're not playing it was you, you sign who's available at the time so for example David Bates might have been what they wanted but was unwilling unavailable whatever at the time and then when he becomes available they're looking at it thinking oh, well we've got to get this guy in because if we have to you know, we'll, we'll take a hit in Gallagher or whatever it may be in the summer or something so I agree I've not been too impressed with him and I'm not too sure why we've got him I guess I'm just saying just because you've got someone doesn't mean they were your number one target. It does strike me though that again the squad the squad screams out to me a three at the back. It really does. I I, I could see a, a three of <laughs> I'm saying that now. Watch this. We'll probably do it. It'll be a fucking disaster. But I could see a three of Gallagher, McCrory and Bates actually working quite well because you'd have a bit of mobility with Bates and with McCrory you'd have Gallagher could sit and be a penalty box defender, which is, I think is probably what he's quite good at doing, to be honest. It's where he's done well for Scotland, is playing in a three. It would allow you to push the likes of Ramsey and McKenzie further up the pitch to play as wing-backs, with the, at least they then have people in a McCrory and Bates being able to drop in to cover them where balls come over the top. And it would also potentially mean we could play somebody a bit closer to Christian Ramirez up top. I'm sure for that reason alone, Christian Ramirez would vote for that. Um, I think my final point on David Bates is he looks like a guy who's had his confidence shattered by the the second half of his time at Hamburg. 
but I think there's enough there that I've seen to to stick with him. Um, and yeah, I mean, at this point, it's nine games without a win, four defeats on the trot. We talked about it, Stephen Glass's thoughts on um, changing things, but keep going like this, then he's going to be out of a job very quickly. So yeah, why not? Why not try that? So two things again here, right? <laughs> Are we just a bit unlucky at the moment? Like, I don't mean that in a really flippant way. But I mean it in the sense that it feels to me right now that every single shot a team has against us is somehow going into our net. It doesn't matter how it's ending up there. It's just going there. It feels like we're really, really struggling to score goals. But you look at, like, St. Mirren last week. We're coasting that game. Absolutely coasting that at halftime. The red card changes everything. Decision-making on the pitch doesn't help, but that's what it is. I look at yesterday. I thought, actually, with a better team in the in the second half, I don't think either team necessarily deserve to win the match, but I don't think we deserve to lose it. I look at the St. Johnston game. When you look back at the St. Johnston game, the cold light of day, neither team did enough that day to win the game. Mullow was, was poor. Mullow was a, was a poor, poor performance. Little things change games of football very quickly. And I just, I can't help but feel sometimes that we've just been exceptionally lucky in the last few weeks. There were instances yesterday where, you know, we are putting shots in or crosses are going in and they just they always land at a celtic head or a celtic foot and it's just is it's that moment of just like oh come on just give us a break here but at the same time it's nine games that i win uh i don't know how how long you can keep going and saying well it's just it's just bad luck and it's just unlucky that we're having individual errors every single week <laughs> i'm not saying what's what it is i'm just throwing out there is that just actually what's happening just now unless like everyone at Vitaudry is just walking because they're under ladders, smashing mirrors. I don't see how you can put that down to, or are we, are we unlucky that we're the only team opposition, uh, you know, wingers put balls in the box and stuff like that. I, I know what you mean. I take your point. There's been the odd thing where it feels like maybe the season's gone by that would have broken and the ball goes in and sometimes all, that's all you need, but I'm not sure. I'm not so sure this run, can be put down to bad luck. Definitely within that, there's a couple of bits and pieces that we were a little bit unlucky. I agree, may or may not have changed the outcome, but you don't go on a run like that through bad luck. Yeah, and this is one of these things as well. I think we could talk about individual errors all the time, but let's be honest, every single goal on every single football pitch generally results from somebody making an individual error of some sort. Yeah, unless unless like Messi's the one that scored. Yeah. You know, usually that's how it works. So. Yeah, exactly. So like we can talk all we want about individual errors. That's what happens in football. And you have to try and find a way to come over it. And just as I said there, are we being unlucky? I then thought, well, last week against St. Mirren, the ball hit off of Scott Brown's you know heel when he wasn't even looking at it, and it you know fell into the net. So we had a slice of luck in that one. And then you know yesterday, the ball loops off Lewis Ferguson's shoulder and Joe Hart, for whatever reason, just decides to just watch it rather than you know wipe out the man on the post. So here's, I guess, the kind of $64 million question. How much time does Stephen Glass get? We, we talked about the run of fixtures we've got coming up earlier on. Um, they're not very kind. Now, let's just say for argument's sake that things don't suddenly click on the training ground during the international break. And our form continues in this kind of trajectory. How long does he get, do you think? I don't know, I was just thinking in my head, what would actually, so obviously if we, you know, if we don't pick up any points in the month of October, for example, so we'd lose to Dundee, Hibs, Rangers, Hearts, or even if you just get a couple of points out of that, I actually, I think what might 
influence the board will be what the teams in and around us do. So, for example, if it's we get through October and we're not really any further behind the teams that we're currently grouped with, it's kind of like no harm done, if that makes sense. I mean, it's damage done as in it's another month gone by, you know, you're probably still on a terrible run. But actually, what's the danger? You're still sitting where you are. But within that, it can't be the case that, oh, well, we're still four points ahead of Livingston. You know, Ross County are still 11th and Dundee are still 12th. Everything's fine. If you've been getting scudded for the month of October, you can't be looking at that and saying, yeah, everything's fine. Let's run into the next month and see what everyone else does around us. So I, I don't know is the honest answer because the forum is really, really bad. And there have been some really poor games in that. And I don't know anything about tactics at all. All I know is what I like at the pitch and what I don't like. But, but I just don't see what we're getting or what we're trying to become. It doesn't feel like we're just that little bit off it. Do you know what I mean? We're, in some games, we're not even in them. I'm doing a lot of like going back and forth between the table and the fixtures, but let's just go into hypothetical mode and say that we lose to Dundee and Ross County beat St. Mirren. Then we're two points off the bottom of the league. I would say two bad defeats could be it. You think as soon as that? Something has to change at that point. I think if there's, if there's no sign of progress on the pitch in terms of you know going forward with this, again, I'm going to use quotation marks here, transitional period, then... How long do you give it before it becomes, you know, unsustainable? I mean, to put it in context as well, our, our current form in the league, there are only two teams who match our current form at the moment. Do you want to take a, a guess who they are? Well, one is Dundee. Yes. And I'm assuming it's with Livingston? No, Ross County. So oh, it is Ross County. Last five games, both all three of us have uh, lost four and drawn one. So that's the kind of form we're in at the moment. Um, well, I'm sure that Dundee and Ross County fans will be on us saying that they've actually picked up uh, a point each in the last four games as opposed to ourselves. Well, yes, possibly, but there we go. I'm picking five because it suits my argument. So, um, <laughs> Is Europe already gone as far as a, a, an opportunity to qualify? We're currently sitting 10 points behind Hearts, uh, seven points off of Hibs, who you'd imagine will be the teams we'd be competing for a European spot with. Unless their form falls off a cliff, then yeah. Yes, it is. I'm not so sure, based on what I'm seeing to date, how we're going to recover that deficit. We're going to have to go and win some games, which hasn't happened that often to date. And yeah, Gavin's right. They're at the point where it doesn't matter what the head-to-head results are now. We could go and beat Hearts every time we play them now. If they still pick up points against the rest, then and they're in business so it, it would be an outrageous season if we could actually end up qualifying through uh, for Europe without winning the cup in a really weird way that might give Glass more time because the board might already be looking at next season now and going well Europe's away we need to budget for that accordingly provided we're not actually in any real danger of being relegated do they then go, well, we give him time to see out to the end of the season. He gets another couple of transfer windows under his belt and then we take it from there. Well, it depends what their ambitions were when they employed him. If the ambition was to qualify for Europe, then no, he can't get the time because he's not done his job. If, if behind closed doors they were saying, look, this season's kind of a free hit, bring in some, you know, develop some players, get some guys in for the longer term. And if we see signs of progress... We'll, we'll deal with the flak. I'd be disappointed if that was their approach. So I have to assume that his remit was to win one of the Cups or 
get us into Europe. There's not really anything else you can do as Aberdeen. Let's, I'm just going to throw out here right now. Let's wrap up this segment. But where are you guys right now? And you're not, don't tell me you're in your house. I know that. I'm frustrated and I'm a little bit worried. I've said a million times, the results are what bothers me, not the way we go about it. So the results are garbage. That's a fact. No one can argue with that. Everyone will have an opinion on other signs of how we're progressing, whatever, but I don't see it. And to be fair, if we were starting to click, we'd be getting the results. So I am worried. I don't, I'm not really sure there's any point in changing it at this point in time. There's enough of the season left to run to recover something from it or survive, depending on your point of view of where we are. But he's running out of time, in my opinion. I don't like looking at the table. I do not like looking at the results and I don't really like anything that's happening on the pitch right now. So, yeah, losing patience. And quite honestly, if I was the board, I'm not really sure I would trust him with another couple of transfer windows because I think recruitment has been very poor as well. I was kind of hoping to wrap up there, but I guess recruitment's a big issue now because we've obviously got our new head of recruitment in the door. So do you kind of almost have to give them time to bed and now make some... Well, that's another thing that I've kind of not talked about, but it's another thing that kind of bothered me when we hired a head coach before a director of football and a, uh, a head of recruitment. It seems like that's not the way that the system should work, but... Well, it's kind of arse about face, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I've slagged Man United off about it plenty of times, so I'm going to kind of have to slag Aberdeen about it. Um, the excuses have to stop at some point. We can't be in this perennial cycle of we've changed this, we've changed that, we've got to give it time. Otherwise, six years down the line, we'll still have achieved nothing. It's just it's just not working. And yeah, there's a very feasible position where we're going to be, I don't know, two points off the bottom come the next round of fixtures because I, I don't see us winning games right now at all, even if it is against Dundee. So all in all, another disappointing Sunday afternoon at Vitaudry to round off a disappointing section of the league campaign. Moving on to other news at Petodre this week. So on the women's side, the women's team slipped a disappointing 3-2 defeat to Hearts at the Balmoral Stadium. To round off what was a disastrous Sunday on the whole for Aberdeen, two changes to the Aberdeen side that started in last week's draw against Spartans. Fran Ogilvy and Nadia Sopel coming into the team of Carrie Doig and Johan Fraser dropping to the bench. Captain Kelly Forrest and Bailey Hutchison missing out again. And the first half was probably to be expected. The Dons dominating a Hearts side who remained pointless in the league. And it was Aberdeen who took a deserved lead on 17 minutes. A fine pass out to Ava Thompson on the right side of the box. And Thompson smashed a great strike into the top corner. And just as your ABZFP correspondent was typing out a tweet to announce the first, the Dons scored a quickfire second. Ogilvy's corner from the left was met at the near post by Louise Brown as she flashed in her second goal of the season to put the Dons in a great position. And in truth, Aberdeen should have been out of sight, but Hearts came up the park and got themselves a goal well against the run of play. A decent hit by Forsyth, smashing the bar, and the ball dropped for Amelie Burst, who headed past a stranded Gail Gilmore. After the break, it was Hearts who started the bright of the two sides, and they nicked an equaliser straight away, a long ball catching out the Dons' defence, and Monica Forsyth nipped in to finish. A couple of decent saves from the Hearts keeper kept the Dons at bay as Aberdeen attempted to get a foothold back in the game. But it was Hearts who complete the fine comeback with a goal in 69 minutes. And it won't be one that Gail Gilmore will want to see again. Gilmore coming out of her area, I clear the ball, but completely mistimed it, leaving Amelie Burst with the easiest of tasks to roll the ball into the empty net for her second of the game. Aberdeen pushed for the equaliser and Parker Smith denied Sopel at the back post as Hearts saw the game out to take three points back to Edinburgh. All in all, a disappointing result, especially after the Dons season had started so positively. 
a tough run of fixtures coming up for Emma Hunter and Gavin Beast Chargers as they face Rangers, Hibs, and defending champions Glasgow City, who stuck nine past Spartans at the weekend in their next three league games. Gav, you were at the ball model on Sunday. What were your thoughts on that one? Yes, yes, I was. Um, you know, I lived two miles away from the stadium. Um, and it was four o'clock kickoff, so I decided part of my quest to find an Aberdeen that can defend took me to the uh, to the Balmoral Stadium. I've got to say, first of all, excellent value for money. It was five pounds to get in and a three-two game of football. So, what more do you want? Aberdeen, yep, they were for forty-four minutes of the game controlled it, and I thought, you know, their defensive shape allowed them to contain hearts and also break in numbers when there, there was a turnover in possession. The goal from Eva Thompson, I'm not, you know, I don't think I'm going into exaggeration, but it, it had a real Marco Van Basten-esque quality to it. And like I say, I was tweeting about it and then Louise Brown scores and it's 2-0 Aberdeen. And at that point, you think there's only one team that's going to run out winners here. Like I said, hearts, they um, they get a, a con- well, not a consolation, they get a, a goal to get back in the game just before half time. It's a, a long-range effort, and you can probably see Aberdeen were maybe a little bit static. Um, the Hearts attack is the only one that follows it in, and she nods it past. And I don't want to sound too critical, and I apologize to anyone, any members of the team or coaching staff who might be listening to this, but the two goals in the second half are both. They're howlers. <laughs> There's no other way of putting it. I mean, they're two goals that the Hearts players just roll into an empty net. I'm sure Emma Hunt will be very disappointed with that. Um and I think just maybe some cooler heads could have prevailed in terms of possession. You know, I think we tended to look for the long ball into the channel rather than maybe just picking the head up and looking for a teammate closer by. And I think Fran Ogilvy went off injured towards the end of the game. She's also a massive player for the team. So hopefully that's just a, a knock or a precaution there. Yeah, disappointing. Because like I say, at 2-0, you thought there was only one team that was going to win it. But um, still plenty, I'm sure, for Emma and Gavin to be, be positive about it's still a learning curve playing at that level, but um, I didn't realize Hearts hadn't picked up any points um, prior to that game. So that, you throw that into the equation, well, I'm sure it's disappointing that they've uh, not come away with anything to show for the game. But yeah, um, enjoyable experience. Um, would recommend it for anyone. And like I say, it's it's great value. I think it's it's free for under-16s as well. So if you can, by all means, get yourself along there and, uh, and support the team. Yeah, great stuff. Absolutely, completely agree. No game for the young team to review this week, although congratulations are due to Alfie Bavage, who was called up to the Scotland Under-16 squad for the upcoming Victory Shield tournament in Belfast. And Bavage has obviously already grabbed a few goals already at under-18 level for the Dons, despite only being 15 himself. And the other main news on the young team this week was the loan move for Ryan Duncan to Peterhead until January. All eyes for the young team are on Wednesday's SPFL Trust trophy tie against Hamilton Ackies, and we wish Barry Robson's side the best of luck for that one. Moving on to Lone Watch, Kevin Hanratty and Tyler McKaita both started for Morton United as they were thumped 4-1 by Banks of D in the Aberdeenshire Cup final at Harlow Park. No game for Huntley this week, which meant the week off for Tom Ritchie and Jack McIver. Jack Milton started for Brecon City in the Highland League, grabbed a goal and was also named man of the match as Brecon ran out 3-2 victors over Bucky Thistle. Michael Ruth got 90 minutes for Falkirk and scored as the Bairns saw off former Don Darren Young's East Fife side by two goals to one. Mark Gallagher played the full 90 for fourth in their 1-1 draw at Stenhouse Muir. And Conor Barron started and picked up a Man of the Match award for Celtic Hearts as they maintained their unbeaten start to life in the senior setup with a 2-1 victory over Anne Athletic, keeping Celtic's four-point cushion in place at the top of League Two. As Banner continuing to impress at Celtic 
Although fellow Dons Loney, Kieran Nguenya, did not make the squad through injury again. Now, Ryan Duncan, we talked about him earlier on. He didn't make the Peterhead squad after his move to the Blue Toon earlier in the week. And finally, Luke Turner retained his place in the starting lineup for Cliftonville as they saw out a 1-1 draw away at Linfield as they maintained their unbeaten start to the Northern Irish Premiership. So let's take a look at the Fantasy Football Scotland League. Another good week for Dynamo Dreadful, Calm Wilson, 55 points, up in top place of 519 points. John Easton, filthy man, Grey Growlers, second spot, 56 points for you, 516. And then the top three rounding off with Keir Miller and I Miss Kabamba, 508 points. So the top, well, the top two are kind of starting to stretch away a little bit here, an eight-point difference between second and third. Jack Curran with his two turkey emojis, nestled into fourth spot how did you boys get on if the app actually loads i can tell you oh lovely stuff well i'll go with me uh a shocking week 40 points not great i had a yeti on the pitch and furuhashi sitting on my bench and i had benjamin seagreast on my bench as well so between the two of them they had 15 points so not great i've slipped way down to 121st spot uh, 50 points in the bank. Uh, Craig Gordon doing his job. Um, a certain Celtic player that may or may not have scored the winner came in handy. But uh, yeah, frustratingly, my front three have got, what's that, 11 points between them while Michael O'Halloran sits on the bench with 10 points. So uh, my uh, my squad rotation maybe needs some work. I actually had a reasonable week. I had 57 points, which is probably one of, what well, might be my best week actually. And I am now flying high in 161st position. Oh, you're, you're moving up. I am moving up. I've got a little green arrow next to my name, which is unusual. Uh, I was going to say, uh, Sweet Considine is uh, sitting now in at, uh, it's Nelson, 111th place. <laughs> but one thing I have noticed, uh, I don't know if you guys have, but sitting in 37th place, I know this doesn't matter because he doesn't listen to the podcast, but our mate Alan, oh, doing no bad. Oh, that's disappointing. How's that happened? Benny and the Jet with uh, 455 yeah, points. Yeah, how has that happened? Can we... Do you have admin rights to fix that? His bench even looks quite good, actually. Who the hell is he... Who's picking his team? I'll tell you what, he's also got two defenders that got zero points. Yeah, I know. I'm a bit disgusted with that. Um, you've, you've totally just knocked me off my train of thought, Gav, because I saw a name of a team I really liked. Um, here we go. 97th place. Heel House of Fun. Well done. Like that. It's good. <laughs> 112th spot Jenks Crivens Help my boob Scott Tate Lovely stuff I like that That's good 115th Don't sell them again I don't think we could If we tried We might be able to sell them To the Northern Ireland National team I think there are Certain things That are certain in life What is it Life Is it death Taxes Death and, taxes And now we can't get called up To the Northern squad Yeah Well with that being said so that wraps up part one of this week's show. Please join us after the break for our exclusive interview with Ali Beg to discuss all things Dandies and his upcoming book, Aberdeen European Nights. And to play out the first half, we're delighted to bring you music from Aberdeen indie alt rockers Van Sleep and their latest single, Oceans. Follow the guys on Twitter at Van Sleep UK, where you'll find links to all their various channels and you can check out Van Sleep as they join Beirut Club on tour in October. Catch them in Glasgow at the Hug and Pint on the 28th. The next night at Sneaky Pete's in, Aber- in Edinburgh and in Aberdeen on the 30th at the Tunnel. So here is Oceans by Van Sleep. 
the core of everything I stand for. I wanna know. I'm just trying my best, son. I'm trying my best, son. This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast is brought to you in association with Archer Knight. Market intelligence is vital for companies working in the offshore energy industry, but all too often the -the off-the-shelf products available from many providers are irrelevant to your business needs or even out of date. Archer Knight's Alliance Market Intelligence Service lets clients take the lead, giving you more effective and useful insight into the sector. To find out more, visit www.archerknight.com. Welcome back to the ABZ Football Podcast. We're delighted to continue our series of exclusive interviews with Don's personalities of past and present and Will Kent 
Aberdeen fans. Joining us on this week's episode of the ABZ Football Podcast, he's a former presenter on the likes of MUTV, Satanta, ESPN Star Sports, and Being Sports. And he's here to talk about all things Aberdeen and to talk about his new book, Aberdeen European Nights. It's Ali Begg. Ali Begg, welcome to the ABZ Football Podcast. How's it going? Very good, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. No, Ali, absolutely not a problem. It's our pleasure. So, listen, let's get straight out of business. Let's talk football. Mm. Always been a football fan? Yeah, ever since I can remember, really. My first memories of football was way back in the in the late 70s, the 1978 World Cup, to be precise. We were living in Holland at the time, and I can still remember my dad going absolutely mental when Archie Gemmell scored that wonder goal against Holland. So that's my that's my earliest memory of football. Having grown up in Newbra, does that mean you were always destined to be an Aberdeen fan? Well, believe it or not, we didn't actually move to Newbra until 1979. But what I've always remembered is still a, quite a vivid memory of mine. Is sat around the breakfast table before we went to school, and my dad would always read the Press and Journal, and he would sort of wax lyrical about this team that had just won the league championship and it sort of broken the old firm dominance at the time. And it just it, it pricked my, my intrigue more than anything else. And soon I found myself watching Scott Sport and watching sports scene if dad would allow me to stay up late and then just becoming familiar with the Aberdeen players and becoming familiar with football. And it was just very natural to become an Aberdeen fan as far as I was concerned. So, yeah, it, it, it really didn't take long for, for, for the football to really prick my interest. So you, you've maybe kind of alluded to it there, but can you pinpoint or recollect a point where your real love for the Dawn started? I think it was probably after my first game. So believe it or not, my first game was actually an Aberdeen defeat at Pataudry. It was the last game of the season, 1980-81. And we lost 2-0 to Kilmarnock. It was also, it so happened to be Joe Harper's last game for Aberdeen as well, which I didn't know at the time. But just, I remember feeling excited going to the game. I can remember Dad, he, we used to always park up on the, 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 the beach links and then walk across the golf course. And then up to the, up Dodger Street to the main stand where Dad always just liked to sit. And I can still remember walking across the beach links and feeling really excited about it. I can remember him lifting me over the turnstiles to get into the game and then just coming out into the stadium itself and just seeing, at the time, the stadium was quite empty because it was a meaningless game. So there weren't that many fans in and we arrived maybe, I don't know, for argument's sake, half an hour before kickoff. And I just remember just seeing the vast emptiness of the stadium, but then hearing this, hearing the, the seagulls and, smelling the pies and the bovril and then as the stadium more and more people started to come in just seeing all the different colours and everything and then just you know seeing the players coming out and warming up and from there that's where it started it was just it instantly I was hooked and I just I, I just wanted more and more even though it was a it was a defeat and I remember feeling absolutely devastated at the end of the game and um, wasn't expecting that type of emotion as well on the way home in the car, just feeling really, you know, pissed off that we'd been beaten. And that was something that really crept up on me that I wasn't ready for at all. Um, but yeah, it, that, that was when I was really hooked. 
I think that's good standing though right there for being an Aberdeen fan for your first game it would be a 2-0 defeat to Kilmarnock it's always the hope it's always the hope just sets you right up doesn't it for a lifetime of misery from that point <laughs> on going back to your early days and I guess through to present day who was your first footballing hero at Aberdeen and we'll put you on the spot could you give us your all-time favourite Don? Oh, Willie Miller instantly uh, became my favourite Aberdeen player and has remained my hero throughout life. And I've been very lucky to get to know him as a person over the years. And he's just, he's just everything that I would hope he would be in a hero. You know, they always have sort of preconceived ideas of what your hero should be and how they should behave. And they always say, never meet your heroes. And I've been let down a couple of times by, by folk that I've been extremely disappointed in when I've met them. But when I met Willie for the first time, I was just, I was, it's probably only one of two times that I've really been properly starstruck in my life. And as soon as I saw him playing football, I just knew that I wanted to be Willie Miller whenever I was out playing with my mates, you know, when you, so who are you going to be today? Well, I'm Willie Miller today. And it never, ever changed. I was always Willie Miller. So yeah, instant hero. It's not often you'll get a centre half being the one that everyone wants to play in the in the playground, is it? Yeah, it's funny that because I, I actually wondered. I, I thought to myself, you know, why did I pick Willie Miller? And I've I've sort of asked myself the same question many times. And he was just it, for me first and foremost, he was instantly recognisable. And again, I can still recollect from a very early age, you know, the the pre match routine that him and Alex McLeish used to do, just mm-hmm. sort of quite close to the touchline, that sort of heading uh, drill that the two of them used to go through. Um, And then obviously because he was the captain of the team as well. And I just think the way he looked and the way that he played and just everything about him, that it it was was only natural that he would become a a hero, I think. So, I mean, that's way too positive for an Aberdeen podcast. That's, you know, let's let's sink into some misery. (laughs) The worst Aberdeen game you've been at in the flesh, and why? Oh, that's a really good question. I've never been asked that question before. I mean, I know there's loads of them, but, you know. I think the biggest disappointment for me was probably the 1992 League Cup final Hmm. um, when we lost 2-1 to Rangers when Gary Smith scored the own goal. I really hope I've got that that correct. I was, I just, I'd not long been in London. I just moved down to London, and I was really missing the football. I was really missing going to Pataudry. And, you know, back then you had to, yeah, you know, I had to call my dad from a little studio flat in, in London to get the updates and becoming very conscious of how much a call back home was going to cost me. So, you know, and at the time I didn't even have a TV. Um, so my, my flatmate, she had a, a small black and white television, believe it or not. You think I'm going back to the dark ages? I'm really not. You know, I'm only going back to about 1992. And um, she had CFAX. And that's how I used to be able to find the Aberdeen scores, was that she would let me sit for five minutes and just watch CFAX. Um, So I was really craving the football and I was missing watching Aberdeen and I was missing going to Petodre on a regular basis. And that was my first game that I attended after moving down to London. And I just think the whole emotion of it you know, it was the first time that we'd all been back to, to Hamden as a family for quite a long time. 
and just the way we lost the game, it's just. And then I remember something that really still grinds my gears to the day is, you know, the two stewards, you know, who are there to sort of protect and to look after people, um, you know, really were, were galling and they were very uncomplimentary about the Aberdeen fans and they were being, um, they were being quite nasty, let me put it that way. And I, I always remembered that and I just thought, first and foremost, how unprofessional they were. And secondly, it's there's a time and a place. And when people are leaving a stadium, you should not be um, having a go, picking at people, laughing at people. Um, I, th- I thought it was really, really poor show. And that's something that's always stuck in my memory as well. But that was a, that was a horrible afternoon. Dear me. Uh, it was the first of like, well, three heartbreaks that season, eh? Because... We've had, yeah. I don't know what, this is probably just a generational thing, but we've, you know, on, on recent episodes, we've had them, um, we've had Duncan Shearer with a, with a D&Jess, mm. Lee Richardson, um, mainstays of that 92-93 team, which, you know how England always used to talk about their golden generation, you know, the kind of Lampards and Gerrard yeah. and all that. For me, that 92-93 team was almost in that category for the Dons, because it was such a good footballing side, and it was a side that deserved to win something that season. And to end up runners up to Rangers and everything yeah. is just like oh, so heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. Yeah, I know. And the fact that we were playing really good football under Willie Miller at the time as well. Um, and I think that had been slightly missing for a while after obviously the transition between Alex, uh, Alex Smith and then Willie coming in. So the fact that, that we were playing really good football and competing on all fronts again. And again, it's that, it's that expectation level. I remember the whole of the city was lifted by how we were playing at that time. Um, and I do think there was a certain element that people were thinking, oh, you know, could this be 91 all over again? Um, and yeah, it, it was always going to be difficult because I think what people also forget, Rangers were a really good side back then. They had some really decent players. And the fact that that we, you know, we, we made them battle all the way and... The cup finals were unfortunate. And I'll let you guys, I've spoken to, to Lee Richardson um, about those cup finals as well. Um, you know, I, I didn't go to the, the Scottish cup final at Celtic. It was at Celtic Park, wasn't it? Uh, it was, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I couldn't, I couldn't get to that game. Um, and I remember feeling devastated that I couldn't get to the game. Um, but the, the, the League Cup final at Hamden was, was such a massive disappointment. In fact, that whole season was a massive disappointment, wasn't it? And I, and I, it's a shame that, I don't know, the following season and the, the couple of seasons after that, it just all went pear-shaped quickly. Um, but such good players. And when you look at the team, you're right, when you look at the team on paper, you sometimes wonder, how did we not win the league that season? How did we not end up with a trophy that season? Um, you know, you can argue the same about the 91 team. You can argue the same about the team that almost got relegated. How on earth? Did we put ourselves in that position with the caliber of player that we had? I mean, two points there. First of all, there's a younger section of our listeners who are currently Googling what the hell CFAX is. (laughs) 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 And secondly, yeah, from doing this podcast, I don't know what it is, we just happen to get players from a certain generation and you end up talking about losing to Rangers an awful lot. It's kind of like group therapy, I guess you call it that. Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Sorry to butt in, Gavin. It's fascinating because 
and, and I'm sure you guys have been the same. Whenever I've spoken to anybody that played in that 91 game, they'll all tell you it was their biggest disappointment of their life. Yeah. Um, and the biggest the biggest disappointment of their entire football career. Um, so, it, yeah, it just goes to show, doesn't it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it could have changed the landscape of Scottish football easily. Yeah, I agree. But if we flip all the misery on its head, well, it sounds like you've been uh, around long enough to know some some good times in Aberdeen's history. So what's your favourite match you've ever attended? Oh, the Cup Winners' Cup final, without a shadow of a doubt. Nothing comes close to it. Um, just the whole experience. You know, I was very lucky that my father all captured it on. Here's another one that the kids are going to have to Google, an old cine film. Oof. So we've got, um, you know, I've been very fortunate that I've got at least three or four four minutes footage of old um, my dad's old cine camera, which he, he took to Gothenburg with him. The only thing that that saddens me is that unfortunately, he, you know, he shot everything, so I, I haven't got anything of my dad on it. Um, but I'm grateful to have shots of my mom. Grateful to have shots of the my my best friend, um, who is who remains one of our best friends to this day, um, and that we captured it all. You know, dad was allowed to because my father. He helped charter many of the aeroplanes that took the fans over to Gothenburg because he he worked for a small charter airline company out of Dice Airport at the time. So he was allowed to go in the cockpit. He was allowed to to film us landing in Sweden. He was allowed to film us taking off at Dice. Just some of the most amazing footage. And, uh, you know, many production companies have approached me over the past 10 years and asked if they can use it. Um, which I, I've, I've happily gave it to them. It's absolutely no issues. I think for me, the, um, the more that I can give to these people to make, to enhance their productions, the better as far as I'm concerned. So, but the Cup Winners Cup final is something, I, I don't speak for any Aberdeen fan, but I think if you were to ask any of the 14,000 Aberdeen fans that were there that night, um, I'm sure that they will all tell you to this day that nothing comes close to the Cup Winners Cup final. One of those things as well, isn't it? Like COVID, you know, has hurt in so many ways, but you think that Aberdeen, we got a trip to Gothenburg in the summer and just what an emo- what an emotional pilgrimage that could have been for so many people there. I know, it was absolutely devastating and it's something that is on a bucket list of mine. I want to go back. I've been back to Sweden many times. And in fact, I've been to Gothenburg twice and um, I desperately wanted to go to the stadium. I'm I just didn't have time, just couldn't do it, couldn't fit it into a schedule. Um, and I remember the second time feeling particularly sad about it, that I just couldn't get there um, because my, my schedule just meant we just didn't have time to do it. Um, but it's something that I'm desperate to do, and I think I'm actually going to do it um, because the 40th anniversary is just around the corner. Well, that's it, and yeah. it's Yeah, and it's something that I desperately want to do, is to go back Um because when I watched the, you know, the, the video on Red TV of Neil Simpson with Malcolm, yeah, um, you know, reliving that moment on the pitch, dearie me, you know, I was getting goosebumps just watching it. So, yeah, it's something that I'm desperate to do. It's one of those, isn't it? It's like I think Hecken would have actually been quite wise. I think if we'd actually been allowed to travel to switch the game to the Ulevi, you know, they'd have got a yeah. good payday of it because I think their ground held like five thousand or something. They'd have got a cracking payday of it. Aberdeen fans would have travelled in their... I mean, first game after COVID pandemic stuff anyway, Gothenburg, it would have been absolutely wild. And I'm the same as you, Ali. It's, it's on my bucket list. We nearly did it a couple of years ago. Um, 
myself and my wife are big Bruce Springsteen fans, which is a really like hilarious like thing to admit at my age, but there we go. And Bruce was playing the U Levy, and I was like, there we go, perfect. I can sell it to the missus because it's going to go and see Bruce. But for me, it's just about going to U Levy. Fine, happy days. <laughs> but it's the worry you always have now because it's an old stadium. It's always that thing about are they just going to pull it down at some point? You know, um, that's definitely on the bucket list. We need to get let's draw Hecken again next season. That's what needs to happen. You see, that's really interesting because um, I wanted to go to the stadium and I was kind of hoping that it would be exactly the same as what it was 40 years ago. Um, because I took a trip to the Olympic Stadium in Munich just to make a, a, a quick video vlog. And it is exactly the yeah. same as what it was when Aberdeen played Bayern Munich back in 83. And it's it, it, for me, that was an, a, such a nostalgic trip. And to go into the changing rooms and to see the shower area and the bath area, even the hair dryers were the same as what they were back in 1983. The referees room is exactly as it was back then as well. So to actually stand in that dressing room knowing that that team had been in there getting their instructions from Sir Alex Ferguson before they went out onto the pitch and then to actually do the walk that those lads walked and the few steps up to come out onto the track. You know, and to actually be able to go out onto the pitch as well and have a walk around the pitch was was really quite special. I got to be honest, and I'm kind of hoping the Ulubi Stadium will be exactly the same. Yeah, well, think, fingers crossed for next year. It sounds like there might need to be an ABZ football podcast pilgrimage lined up for 2022. <laughs> so we'll get the invite sent out. So uh, you, now that you've been living out of Scotland for for some time, what's the the maddest or the greatest extent that you've gone to in order to catch an Aberdeen game? I've been quite fortunate that Red TV started round about the time that I actually left Scotland, which was 2007. And I actually, I think I'm right in saying that the Dnipro game was one of the first games that was ever broadcast live on Red TV. So I was able to get a subscription, but I didn't have a laptop at the time. So what I had to do was a friend of mine who had become quite pally with in, in Singapore, he very kindly invited me around to his gaff so that I could watch the game on his laptop. So now considering it was what, uh, quarter to three in the morning, I think kickoff was. <laughs> so, you know, he, he let me in and he said, look, there's the fridge, there's the laptop, there's the electricity, just knock yourself out. But please just remember what time it is. You know, when Dan, Dan and Mackie scored that goal, there was absolute, I think I woke up the whole block. Um, so I did that, but something I do remember is I had to travel to Japan. Um, so this is going back to uh, 1994. I had to travel to Japan and Aberdeen were playing while I was traveling. And I remember speaking to the purser and asking if I could go and sit in the jump seat in the cockpit because I knew all these technical terms because of my, my you know, my dad's uh, um, uh, connections with aviation. And my dad used to, he had an old business card and I would use the business card to give to persons to say to them, do you mind if I sit in the jump seat for the landing and stuff like that? So I had an old business card of my dad's and I gave it to this person. I said to her, look, do you think I could sit in the jump seat for a while? I'll be quite interested to have a quick look. And so she went up and she came back about five minutes later and said, sure, the captain would love to have you up there. So I came up and I sat in the jump seat and uh, we were flying over Russia. And I was thinking to myself, right, well, it's going to be kind of around about half time. So I said to the captain, I says, can you do me a huge favour? I says, where's the nearest tower and some obscure place and, you know, out of Siberia? And I said, could you maybe like, 
ask him if he could find out what the Aberdeen score is for me. <laughs> you know, and this this utter look of bemusement from the captain, particularly his co-captain, who gave me an absolute stunning double take as he talked And he did. And the captain radioed this tower and said to him, you know, you've probably never had this sort of request before, <laughs> but a young man here who's a big Aberdeen fan, is there any chance you could have a quick look and see if you could find out the Aberdeen score for me? You know, and again, you could you you could obviously you can see this guy, but you could you could sense the bemusement on the other side in this Russian tower. And mate, I don't know, I don't know how he did it, but he found he was on Russian CFAX. I got no idea who did it. I swear, but he found out the halftime <laughs> score for me. Can you imagine in the middle of outer Siberia? So I said to the captain, "Look, fantastic. Do you mind if I come back in four or five minutes?" minutes? <laughs> <laughs> And he actually said to me, no problem at all. And he did. And this is when we were actually quite close to Japan and he found out the full-time score for me. And I'm, I can't remember who we were playing. It was such a long time ago. But I remember winning because I came out and I was like cock-a-hoop <laughs> running down the aisle. Yes! <laughs> well, if you, were, if you were to have done that this Sunday past, it would not have been so good. Bringing that to present day, so Ali, can you just share with us your your thoughts on on where the club are at the moment, and specifically your thoughts on Stephen Glass's appointment and the direction the club are, are trying to head in? I had no issues when Stephen Glass was appointed. Um, I actually, uh, I I wouldn't use the word excited. I think that's slightly over the top, but I welcomed it, and I knew the work that Stephen had been doing in, in Atlanta for Atlanta United Tour. So I was fully aware of the good work that he was doing. I was a little bit concerned that he didn't have much experience when it came to working with a, with a first team. But I just felt that the job that he was doing over there, and if he could translate that to what his visions were for Aberdeen, I thought, I think it could work. And I always knew it was going to take time. I always knew there was going to be a transitional period that we were going to go through. And I always felt that there had to be a good six months. And I just had a feeling that there was going to be a rough ride along the way. I didn't quite expect it now, I have to be honest. But I had no issues with him being appointed Aberdeen manager. Um, do I have any issues with the way we're playing? Yes. Do I have issues with Stephen Glass, the way he is as a manager? I've, there's been a couple of times when I've questioned the rotation of the squad. It's been quite hefty, I think. Um, I don't think making Scott Brown captain was the right call. I think Joe should have remained captain and club captain. I just think, you know, Craig Levine made a very interesting point. He actually said, you don't need to make Scott Brown a captain because he's a captain anyway. It's it's in his nature to be a leader. So I actually thought, I actually, it's not very often that I've agreed with Craig Levine, but on that point, I actually agreed with him. And I sometimes wonder, because it's quite obvious that Joe is struggling at the moment, that having that responsibility taken away from him on the field of play I wonder if that actually affected him more than, than we possibly know about. So for me, that was a concern. Um, I didn't see all of Sunday's game. I was sort of in and out. I'm going in and out of it. But up to the point where we lost Teddy Jenks, I actually thought we were doing okay. Um, I was extremely encouraged that we'd come back from a goal down. 
Um, I thought we were playing well. I thought we were in control of the game. But then after we went down to 10 men, I was really shocked because I felt we absolutely capitulated and we did not manage the game at all. And that was a real concern for me. Now, is that Stephen Glass's fault? Or is that the fault of the players that are on the pitch? You, you can make up your own mind on that. But I also think that players have got to take responsibility. And I was at the St. Johnston game. And, you know, the, the, the goal that we lost, nobody took control. When the ball broke to Stevie May, I just didn't think anybody took control of that situation. It should have been dealt with so much better. So I think the players have to actually really stand up and be counted at the moment. Um, yes, we can, of course, question the tactics. Yes, we can, of course, question the, the team selection. I get that. The experience, now that he's under pressure, and he now must be seriously under pressure, now we see Stephen Glass, the individual, how he copes with that psychologically, how he copes with it this week in training, and how he copes with it with what is a huge game now on Sunday before we go into the international break. It's a massive game on Sunday. And you know what I, what I think is quite interesting? I think the situation that Aberdeen currently find themselves in is actually deflecting away somewhat what is happening in Glasgow to Celtic. Because Celtic are not in great shapes at the moment as well. Um, but I think what's happening with us has deflected some of that attention away from, um, from Celtic. So in terms of the club going in the right direction... I don't have any issues with what's going on at the football club as an institution. Um, I applaud Dave Cormack during the COVID. They did, the football club did a phenomenal job. We have a football club. Everybody is still in a job that was working at that football club. They did wonders for the community when a, in a time where a community desperately were looking for maybe, I don't know, somebody to step up to the plate. Could you put it that way? Um, and the football club did. So from that point of view, I, I, I have absolutely no complaints about the football club whatsoever. But it's, it's worrying. And it's, I don't know, I, 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 I'm shocked that we're in this position. I really am. Because to be honest, if you, if you peel it all back, I actually think we've played some really good football. Um, I'm much more encouraged about the way we played football this season than what we did last season. But then again, you know, we're not winning games, are we? At the end of the day, it's... it's what happens at the end of 90 minutes and if we're losing games hand over fist there has to be a post-mortem I think you're echoing a lot of the sentiments that we talked about when we reviewed that game especially when it comes to taking responsibility in situations and I kind of made the point that I find that we're the team are not standing up when they're challenged and that's really concerning Agreed. and I think I found I think what you kind of alluded to a lack of reaction from glass when the red card happens was very surprising as well Interesting one thing that you picked up there um, that you mentioned about Joe Lewis losing the captaincy. Now, I think there's a section of Aberdeen fans that weren't too, um, how should we say, enamoured with Joe Lewis being captain. Perhaps for the simple reason he's a goalkeeper and there's this idea that a goalkeeper can't influence the game. I'm just going to say Manuel Neuer at Bayern Munich seems to do okay, but whatever. Do you think, so do you think that was like a real blow to Joe Lewis to, to lose the captaincy? I'm just putting it out as an argument, but Sometimes I do wonder, you know, was he affected by it? Um, how disappointed was he to have that responsibility taken away from him? Because I'm not being funny. If, 
and I can only talk for myself personally, if that happened to me, I'd be pretty pissed off. I've got to be honest. Um, okay, I've retained the club captaincy, but that comes with a whole different set of circumstances. Um, so, and, and I actually remember speaking about this way back at the beginning of the season with Stuart McKimmy. And I wanted to know, well, who is the actual captain on the field of play? This was before Scott Brown was named as the, the, the captain. I wanted to know who was going to be the captain because Scott was brought in as a coach. Joe was still the captain at the time. So, you know, you've got a player coach you've got, and you've got a captain, two different people. So what's going on there? Um, now, listen, it was sorted quickly and we all knew what was going to happen. And for that, I have I have absolutely no issues with it at all. But I just wonder if Joe was affected more than we than we think or that we maybe know. I wonder as well, it's a bit of a kind of, I kind of feel with that. It's one of those, it's like, if you're going to take the captaincy off him, take the captaincy off him, lock, stock and, lock, stock and barrel. Don't do this weird halfway house thing. I completely agree. Um, for me, that's them saying, uh, there's a token gesture. Yeah, exactly. And that, for me, that's that's not how it should have been done. Not yeah. for Joe. I think Joe deserved a little bit more respect than that. Yeah, I, I think that's a really fair point. I think it should have been all or nothing, to be fair, with, with Joe. And the other bit I think, Ali, is interesting you picked up on as well, because I found myself arguing with people on Twitter over the weekend, which is always a bad thing to do. Don't engage on Twitter. <laughs> Any advice I could offer you, don't engage on Twitter. It is is absolutely the point you raised though as well. And somebody made somebody else made the point about it that I saw that for me, from my perspective, Gav Graham, you might feel a bit differently, but the only other team in the Scottish Premiership right now who's going through the same sort of and I know people hate the word transition, but let's be honest, that's what it is. The only team in Scotland that's going through the same level of transition as we are, is Celtic. And Ange Postecoglou's been backed heavily by his board, belatedly, don't get me wrong, it took them a while to pull their finger out of their arse to do something about it. But he's spent a lot of money, he's brought some He's brought some big names in there. And at this, at the moment we're recording this, and for the for the voice of doubt for people listening to it, we're recording this before the Celtic game, although this will go out after the Celtic game. At this moment in time, as we sit, Celtic are sitting two points ahead of us, having... Travelled to Tynecastle, been beaten there. Having travelled to Livingston, been beaten there. Two venues Aberdeen have not been beaten at, who've come away with four points from those venues this season alone. They've just been held 1-1 by Dungeon United, a team who we beat comfortably on the opening day of the season. They're only two points ahead with the money they've spent. Uh, for me, they're, we're the two teams that are sitting in that real transition phase. I know people will look at Motherwell and they'll say Motherwell have like, had 14 players out and 15 players in, but Motherwell are still playing the same way that Motherwell always play. Yeah. They're very compact, they're very niggly, they're very difficult to break down. Aberdeen are trying to do a completely different thing, and that doesn't happen in three months. Yeah, I agree. You see, the thing is that, that there are signs there that we could actually be a really decent side, a good footballing side. But the problem is, at the moment, something is not working. Now, when I look at the final third against St. Johnston, for example, I was really surprised at our lack of quality in that area of the pitch. Now, considering that we have a specialised coach who we all get told is his, that is his area of expertise, I would like to know what he's doing on the training pitch because I'm not seeing a great deal of creativity. I've seen glimpses of it and flashes of it at set pieces where there's been you know, forward thinking and they've tried a couple of set pieces out of the box, which was great, but I've not seen it for, I've not seen it for 
four, five, six weeks now, not delivering enough crosses into the box, which has been, uh, which is such a bugbear of mine. You go back to when, you know, we had Nile on one side, Johnny on the other, and Adam through the middle. Adam fed off the delivery from those guys week in, week out. Now, we've got Nile on one side, we've got Lad Samuels, we've got Johnny. Calvin Ramsey's doing phenomenally well bombing up the wing, doing his best to get balls into the box. But at the moment, I don't think there is enough creativity in that area of the pitch whatsoever. I think Christian Ramirez is, I would like to do him, I'd like to see a little bit more work rate from him. Um, you know, just pulling defenders out of position, making little runs. I don't see enough of it, but I can see, I can see what he's trying to do and I get it. Um, but I just want to see a little bit more movement if I'm being brutally honest. Um, I, I sometimes wonder if he needs somebody closer to him. To, to feed off more. I think, I, you know, and I mean this with the greatest respect to the boy Jet. At the moment, I don't subscribe to him at all. I, I thought early season, I was encouraged, but I've not seen anything since the Europa League games to suggest to me that he's an Aberdeen player. Um, and I mean that respectfully. Um, I just, uh, I don't know. I think the mad, this is the mad thing. I actually think we're not far away. I really do. And I just think we need something to just kick us on, give us that spark of confidence. And I, I don't know what it is and I don't know where it's going to come from. I wish I, I wish I knew because I'd probably text Stephen and say, right, here's your, here's your moment of inspiration. But I don't have the answers. Um, you know, I'm a fan like you guys and I just see what's presented in front of us. And at the moment, something's not working. The, you know, we can discuss and we can chew the fat over the defensive errors, you know, Seriously, I, I, I'm despairing at some of the goals that we are losing at the moment. It's just, it's honestly, it's bordering on comical. And again, this is what we talked about before. The players need to stand up and take responsibility for the way they're defending. Um, you know, it, you can't coach these things, I don't think. If you're, if, you're, if you're naturally a defender as a player, you should know your job. You should know your position. You should know what you have to do in a certain moment during a game. And at the moment, we're just giving away far too many cheap and silly goals. Do you think, last question, I guess, on the current state of affairs, um, do you think that <clears throat> Stephen Glass is also possibly suffering a little bit, certainly within the, the kind of the Aberdeen kind of fan base, popular opinion, so to speak, because there's a section of the support that's quite a vocal section, I think, um, certainly on social media and stuff, that almost it didn't matter who came in to replace Derek McInnes. There was going to be a level of scepticism or whatever around whoever it was that came in. There seems to be a number of people who still, who still seem to be very welded to this aura about the previous manager. And no matter what anyone whoever came in was always going to face a bit of a challenge to try and overcome that. Any new manager that's going to come into Aberdeen Football Club is going to face the same challenges. Um, listen, I have no issues with any football fan, especially Aberdeen fans, venting frustration, um, making their opinions, as long as it's an, you know, as long as it's a respectful opinion, as long as it's an educated opinion. You know, I can't stand these people that come on and just rant and rave and swear and use bad language and um, call people names. I, I just don't get that. You know, we're all entitled to opinion. We don't all have to agree on that opinion. And we certainly don't all have to disagree 
on an opinion. That's why we're all football fans. But it was always going to be difficult for Stephen because there was that natural tie-in with the chairman. So that made people very sceptical straight away. It was obvious that people were always going to be questioning his lack of experience. That was always going to be there and that was always going to be in the background. And as soon as the team started to struggle, that's the first point of call for many, many people is he's not experienced, he's the chairman's mate. Um, and we all knew this was going to happen. So there's many, many challenges that Stephen now has to face, not just as a football manager, but as a person as well. Because don't tell me he's not under pressure, because he will be under pressure and he'll be feeling it. And he will be fully conscious of what is probably being said and what is going on. And it's now up to him and his support. And we're talking, and when we talk about support, we talk about the players, we talk about his coaches, and we talk about the people that he has to answer to. There has to be a support network in place to make sure that he comes through it so that the players come through it, so that the football club come through it, and we start getting back to winning three points, playing the type of football that he has envisaged for our football club, and that we all start singing from the same hymn sheet and we all get behind the team again. Um, I don't like divisions in support. I, I certainly don't like it in, in our support, but that's football. It's just going to happen. And it's it's something, it's just a reality of being a football fan, I'm afraid, and supporting a football club, that there will be divisions. Um, so it's, you know, it's... It's a big few weeks for Stephen because October is a tough month. Yeah, no, I agree. I really hope I'm. I hope I hope I'm making sense and not waffling here. <laughs> I just I just want to know, Ali, when you say about engaging with supporters' opinions, are you saying that I shouldn't be taking to heart the person who said that Joe Lewis is the worst goalkeeper in Aberdeen's history? You know, Gavin, I saw that. I actually saw that, and I'm and I'm and I'm glad you responded in the manner that you did because honestly, stuff like that just baffles me. It really baffles me. People have very short memories. I think Joe has arguably been our best goalkeeper since you could say Theo Schnell does. Um, he's an absolutely phenomenal goalkeeper. And I'll tell you something else. He's a really, really nice bloke as well. And he'll be hurting at the moment. And knowing the person that he is, he'll be devastated about what's going on at the moment. And the first, the first person that he'll be looking at is himself. Yeah. He'll be taking a long, hard look in the mirror. And trust me, he'll want to rectify the issues as well. And he'll be working just as hard on the training pitch to make sure that the mistakes that he's been making do not happen again. But I'm I, I'm glad you answered that, that tweet in that fashion, Gavin, because it was a ridiculous statement to make. Um, but sometimes, you know, people say things on the whim. They say things, um, you know, when their emotions are taking over, they say things in anger. I, you know, I get it, and I can forgive people for that. But sometimes I just wonder: just stop and think before you go into the minefield that is social media. Yeah, I mean, Graham and I were at the St Johnston game, and we we stand in the what well, we stand. I we were about to say we sit, but we stand in the red shed. Mm. And you know, when Joe Lewis, when the goal goes in, you know, we can all say what we want about Joe Lewis as his form right now, but. I don't know exactly where he's from, but the one thing you can tell about this guy is that he cares so much about the club because he wanted more than anyone for us to be better that day. And you could see it. So, yeah, like you said, I think people should just give him some support rather than... He appears to have become a scapegoat recently, and that's uh, a little bit of a tragedy in my mind. Me too. I agree. Yeah, I think the, the last point on social media is the reason I don't have the login to the account is Gavin and Gary are more eloquent in their responses 
than I would be. So <laughs> if you see a tweet from the from the account, it wasn't me. I'm not eloquent on it at all. I'm I'm mostly communicating gifs, to be honest. But yeah, know, I'm the same. Yeah. So we'll we'll maybe uh, we'll park the current situation, and we'll we'll turn to to the day job, as it were. So you've been fortunate enough to spend uh, good chunks of time with some Don's legends. But I was just wondering which interview you were most pleased with, and who was most engaging with you. It's a good question. Uh, to be honest with you, and, I, and I'm not dodging your, your question, I'm really not, and, I, and I'm certainly not generalising here, but they've all been absolutely fantastic. Um, I've been extremely fortunate and privileged to be in the position that I am where, like you guys, I'm sure you guys will understand this, to be able to speak to these guys at close quarters for the amount of time that we engage them. It's, uh, you know, it's a thrill. It really is. Um, you know, the, the, the last blog that I did with Andy Dornan, not many Aberdeen fans will, will know who Andy Dornan is. A generation of football Aberdeen fans will not know who he is. Um, okay, he only played three times for the game, but his story is a fantastic story. And I just felt it deserved to be told. And he's such a funny guy and he tells such great stories that to be able to engage Andy in, in the manner that, we, that I did, I thought made for a really good and intriguing blog. And it was fascinating because his blog actually uh, had far more traction than Arthur Graham's, which I was really surprised about. And I thought Arthur's would do really, really well. And I've got to be honest, it was a little bit slow, um, which I was slightly disappointed about because Arthur Graham's a legend as far as I'm concerned. Um, but nearly you know, all of them have been absolutely brilliant. You know, when I've spoken to, to people like Tanko, again, a, a generation of fan might not remember him or those that do remember him will only remember him for the bad times. Um, and, you know, I had a couple of guys actually come to me and say, what the hell are you interviewing him for? He was absolutely hopeless when he was with us. And I said to them, did you read the interview? And they said, well, no, of course not. I said, well, go and read it and then try and understand and then come back to me after and tell me genuinely what you thought about it. And to be fair, one of the lads came back to me and said, look, Ali, he said, I'll be brutally honest. He says, I've completely changed my mind on the guy because now I fully understand what he was going through and those whole set of circumstances while he was at Aberdeen, which may have actually been a deterrent to him, the, the style of football that he was playing on the pitch at the time, and possibly why he struggled um, while he was living in Aberdeen. So now I totally get it. So, you know, it's, it's stuff like that where maybe you, uh, the blogs are maybe a little bit educational. I don't know. Um, maybe the, I would like to think that some of the blogs are quite inspirational as well. You know, the, the first one that I did with Ian was just phenomenal the fact that he came through his health issues a stronger person for it and you know has given him a new a newfound love and respect for life um for me is is was, was quite humbling um and a few folk you know got in touch with me and says really enjoyed the read and had some health issues myself and you know he's he's uh it's it, it's good to know that i'm not the only person that's out there that's had health issues and has, has had has been struggling with it so you know, if, if if one out of the couple of hundred blogs that I've done has helped one person, then as far as I'm concerned, I've achieved what I wanted to achieve. So I've been very lucky, lads, I've got to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I think we would agree with that. I mean, we're only, well, this will be 11 or 12 episodes in, but the guys we've dealt with so far, they've all been absolute toppers, you know, have given us more time than we deserve, than we merit, Um and really great stories and just really engaging with us and just willing to go along with whatever it is we're asking them to do. You know, when you get 
I can't imagine how I would feel if I was in their shoes and I got an email off of a random bloke like me asking them to spend like a Monday night chatting about something that happened 30 years ago. Um, but they've all been brilliant. I mean, guys like Theo Tenkat, who didn't have the best of times at Aberdeen, you know? Fantastic. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. Absolutely brilliant. What a yeah. guy. Yeah. And I joked about it with Ian before we started recording with him last week, but um, it's because we'd recorded with, with Rico the week before. And I said to Rico, look, we're, we're just chatting away. And I said, look, we're, we're, we're doing Ian next week. And uh, he was like, oh, how's, how's he getting on? Blah, blah. I was like, ah, fine, blah, blah. And he's like, you need to give him my number. So I was like laughing. I was like, you know, I was saying to Ian, I was like, well, here's Rico's number. And I was like, if you'd have told what would I have been at the time when they were in the Aberdeen team, nine or 10 year old me, that 25 years later, I'd be acting as the kind of like AFC former players liaison officer for swapping mobile numbers between these guys. I'd have said you were crazy. And it's that daft thing, isn't it? You get transported back to your youth in a way because it's like... Totally. They're just, they're just, they're just blokes. Yeah. At yeah. the end of the day, like you and I, and uh, or the four of us on the call just now, but... They still hold that mystique and that aura about them, but they've been brilliant with us and um, long may that continue, hopefully. But let's crack on. So on 21st of October, Ali, your new book, Aberdeen European Nights, is released. Talk to us about the concept of the book and what it was that made you decide to take you know that on as a, as a project and a topic. It actually started about, uh, it was about two and a half years ago. Um, I got approached by a publisher and... Um, I was, I was home from Qatar, and he said to me, look, the next time you're home, I'd like to have a, a chat with you because I, 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 I'd like to discuss with you a project. He says, I'm a big fan of your blogs, love reading your blogs. So I went and met him, and he said to me, look, I think you've got a series of books here. And at first I was a little bit, I wasn't overly keen because what I didn't want to do was, was come across that I was using the blogs to write a, blo- to write a book. And I didn't want that perception to come across. And I was, I, I got to be honest, I was slightly troubled by that. Um, but I, I didn't want people thinking I was just using the blogs, right? And the content that I've been very lucky to get. But he said to me, look, this is a, this is a story that deserves to be told. And it's, it doesn't matter that it's only about Aberdeen because any football fan, um, will enjoy these reads because there are so many great stories here. So I went away and I thought about it. And I got to be honest, I, I parked it because I just had that niggle in the back of my mind and I just parked it. And then I got made redundant and I thought to myself, do you know what? Um, I, I'm enjoying these blogs so much and I loved writing my first book. It was a real labor of love. And I thought, do you know what? I'm, I'm going to do this because the the experience was was such an emotional experience for me because the first book was my journey as a child from being a kid into adulthood. And this one is almost the same. Um, and it's, it's transporting me back to a time that I just have nothing but the best of memories for. So the publisher, Pete and I, we discussed it. And I said to him, look, I, I think I can add to what I've got so, you know, we, we spoke about a few ideas and how we could add to the book and how we could make it more interesting and how we could give it more depth and give it more context. And I went away and thought of a few things and I thought to myself, there are so many people out there who have played against Aberdeen in big European games. If I can tap into them 
like I've been tapping into all these guys for my blogs, then we're going to have a completely different perspective on these European nights because you're going to get it from an, an opponent's point of view as well. So we put everything together. We came up with a blue, blue plan and off we went. And a year ago, I started basically this new project and um, I collated all the blogs and that was that was quite difficult because it was like a... It's like a huge jigsaw puzzle that I had to basically piece together and to get it into chronological order. Um, and then I just started adding to the narrative. So Peter, my publisher, gave me some great advice. He said to me, take it one chapter at a time, take it one story at a time. Otherwise, it's just going to become, everything will become a muddle and you'll just get lost in it. So he said, take one topic and one game at a time and just work on that. And then you can always come back to it. You know, while you're doing your research in another game, you might find something and you can go back to it. And that's exactly what I did. So I wrote a list of chapters and I wrote a list of games. And um, I sent the, the list of games to a couple of good friends of mine who are also huge Aberdeen fans and said, right, have I got this right? Are there, is there anything that I'm missing? And a couple of folk came back to me and said, you've, you've got to put that game in, you have to. Um, oh, I'm not sure about that game. Take that game out. And then a really good friend of mine made a fantastic point. He said to me, look, you've gone from the Reykjavik game all the way to the Austria-Memphis game. There's nothing in between. You need to add something in between. And I thought, yeah, okay, that's interesting. But I've got to be careful because otherwise I could get seriously bogged down. Um, so we looked at that carefully. And then again, there was another big gap. So I, between, um, let me think, between the Gothenburg game and the Groningen game. It was, a, it was a big gap again. And I thought, right, that needs to be filled as well. And the weird thing was, I started to find patterns. <laughs> um, and that's how, thankfully, the book was then able to flow quite nicely. And I was really happy with, because I, I always get worried about the flow of the book. Um, I, I didn't want it to go off track and I didn't want it to jerk. You know, there's nothing worse when you're reading a book and all of a sudden it jerks. So I needed to make sure that I got the flow of the book um, working well and thankfully it, it did so it took me a year um, to write the whole thing get it done and here we are ready to go well yeah I think we're we're all certainly looking forward to to that being released uh, so so far on the, the few episodes that we've done every single player we've been fortunate enough to speak to uh, that has pulled on the red or navy and gold in some cases and represented Aberdeen in a European type, Tawdry has always talked about how much they loved the atmosphere that those games generated, uh, the European nights. So just wondering if you had to pick one of those European games at Tawdry, what would your favourite be? Oh, Bayern Munich, 1983. Oh my God. I'm getting goosebumps now just talking about it. That is, it's, an, it's a night like no other at Pataudry. Um Because I didn't understand the away goal rule. I didn't get it at all, yeah? So when they went 2-1 up, um, obviously I, I, I understood that bit, that they were 2-1 up and they were now winning the tie. But when we got it to 2-2 and then we scored again so quickly, it, I was so confused. I didn't know what was going on. Um, and it, it, it took my dad telling me, you know, we're winning 3-2. We don't have to worry about the away goals. We're winning 3-2. We're going through if they can hang on. Um, but there was a split second 
after John Stewart scored the winner that I was like, what's happened? What's going on? And I remember pulling my dad's arm on. He was going absolutely nuts. Um, it was just, you know, we were really lucky that night because, again, the whole thing added to the experience. We usually sat in the south stand. So my dad went from the main stand and then he shifted us over to the south stand. And then as I got a little bit older, that's when I started. I ended up going into the Merkland road stand with uh, with my pals. But around about that age, so when I was 10, 11, 12, we were either in the main stand or over in the south stand. But for that night, my dad got his tickets in the main stand and we were about three rows up from where the players' tunnel is, just a little bit to the right in the main stand. So I could see all the players up close, you know, and that added to the whole experience. You know, when they came out to warm up, they were just right there in front of me. Like I could almost touch them. Um, and, uh, you know, when they came in for their warm-ups and I'm waving and I'm waving and they look up and they wave back and you're convinced that they've waved at you, right? <laughs> um, and just that whole experience added to that night as well. And the noise is... The noise generated that night, again, apart from Gothenburg, was just... Because at Gothenburg, it was it was, diff, it was different because we were in the lower tier, so all the fans were up above us. So the noise came down on top of us. I really hope I'm making sense here, Christ. Um, but at Pataudry, it's totally around you. Yeah, so you're totally engulfed in the noise. Whereas at, at Gothenburg, it, it sort of took a couple of seconds to flow down on top of you. Um so the whole the whole night was just unbelievable. Um, Christ Almighty, you know, when and the fact that I was there with mum and dad was, you know, my mum and dad have passed away, both of them have sadly passed away now. So that's you know, when I can when I think about my mum and dad, I think about the Bayern Munich game, I think about Gothenburg. You know, I can I can still see my mum and dad hugging themselves, you know, hugging each other with me right in the middle getting squashed after. John Hewitt scored the winner um, for both games. Um, you know, Gothenburg was different because we had family friends with us and they were all jumping on top of each other. I can still I can still see that in my mind as well. Um, but honestly, Bayern Munich was, oh man, I wish I had the words to be able to convey to you what it felt. But I, I, Jesus, man, it was unbelievable. And we got home in time for the highlights. I remember that. We got home in time to watch the highlights, you know, um, and watch the, the highlights. And there's a little clip, and you you have to trust me when I tell you this, at full time when you see them go back in, you can just see a little shadow waving his red scarf. I promise you, lads, that was me standing on the seat waving the waving my, my red and white scarf. Um, so, yeah, that was a really, really special night. No, absolutely. And it's, it's, it's great as well. It's that thing. We spoke to James Graham from the Twilight Sad last week, and... James's entire kind of thing about what Aberdeen Football Club means to him is all about the connection with his dad. It's not even obviously about the football, it was the opportunity to spend time, quality yeah. time with his dad. And, yeah. you know, just what you've talked about there, Ali, with, with, with your parents as well. And, I, I, you know, it'll go out there for a lot of people listening to it today as well. It's not just about the football. And I think that's the thing that non football fans, right? Which is the thing I'm like, I don't get that. I don't get how you can be a football fan, but there we go. It's that thing you you, you don't get. It's not just about the football. It's about everything that's associated with football, you know, and, and what that does to people and the relationships and everything. That's what makes football so so special. But that's me getting way too fucking philosophical about it now. <laughs> I mean, out of 
all the interviews or stories that you've kind of picked up for the book, is there one in particular that you kind of enjoy or love over the rest? And I don't want any spoilers or anything, but... No, I mean, no, it's fine. Um, th- th- there are, there's two particular stories. Um, or there's, there's two particular... There's a story and then there's an interview. So I was very fortunate to have been able to track down the Reykjavik goalkeeper from our first ever European game. And this guy's in his 80s. And tracked him down through uh, a couple of other guys that I interviewed for the book who were also Icelandic as well. And um, got his email address and just emailed him and made the connection with uh, with Laris, the, the other lad that I interviewed as well, who played for Watershine. And uh, Laris put me in touch with him. And um, I just told him about what I'm doing. And I said to him, I appreciate it. It's a long, long time ago. But if there's anything that you can offer me, I'd be really, really grateful, even if it's just, you know, one or two sentences. You know, and he came back to me and I was honestly, when that in, when that email popped in in my inbox, I was buzzing. Um, and he said to me, just send me some questions and I'll, and I'll see if I can remember. So I sent him, I only sent him half a dozen questions and he was able to answer all of them. So I was able to get sort of two or three paragraphs, you know, from the goalkeeper who conceded 10 goals against Aberdeen in their first ever European game. So I was really buzzing about that. But the story that I found particularly amusing, and there's, there's two or three really quite funny stories in there, especially about Walker McCall when he was too scared to come out of a toilet in Romania once. Um, on that same trip when Aberdeen played Ajax Potesti in Romania, um, so they had to play the game in the afternoon. And the reason that they had to play the game in the afternoon is because Obviously, at the time, Romania was a communist country and floodlights were banned. So they had to play the game in the afternoon, which meant they had to catch a flight back to Aberdeen early evening. Now, for those of you who are old enough to remember, Dice Airport always closed at 10 o'clock at night, no matter what. So if you were the last flight coming in and you weren't going to make the time to land, you were diverted to Edinburgh. So coming back on the flight and apparently they've got really strong nose winds and uh, the captain comes on the tannoy and says ladies and gentlemen I'm really sorry to report but unfortunately we're going to miss our cut off time at Aberdeen airport which means we have to divert to Edinburgh upon which Alex Ferguson (laughs) rises from his seat (laughs) storms down the aisle disappears into the cockpit he comes back two minutes later and takes his seat. <laughs> Ten seconds after that, the captain comes on the tunnel and says, ladies and gentlemen, I am delighted to report that we shall, in fact, be arriving in Aberdeen 10 minutes late. <laughs> and that really made me chuckle. And, you know, only Sir Alex Ferguson could pull a stunt like that, march yeah. into the cockpit and say, you will land in Aberdeen. <laughs> I don't care if there's no lights on. (laughs) I just want to say, for somebody who used to work at Aberdeen Airport, we used to be fucking delighted with the 10 o'clock curfew. When there was a late flight from Amsterdam, is it 10 minutes late? That's a shame. Is it going to Edinburgh? Oh, dear. (laughs) Oh, well, I'm with him. Nice one. Just for the voice of that, I want to just point this out. Ali, we didn't preempt you with any of these questions at all, did we? No, no, not at all. Because the question I had was about the KR Reykjavik keeper. That was my follow-up to that. So there we ah, go. Seriously, there you go. Okay. So yeah, it's uh, it's it's been really, really good. And I've, I've really, really enjoyed putting the book together. And 
Um, you know, I've been really lucky to have spoke to some great people who gave me some fantastic stories. Archie Knox's story about the Ipswich game is just hilarious. Um, so, yeah, I really hope people enjoy it. I'm sure they will. Do you think you've been able to pick up on the, the changing face of European football in a kind of more general sense beyond just Aberdeen? And what I mean by that is that the fact that in modern times, it's a lot more difficult for a club like Aberdeen to even break into the main part of a tournament. And you think back to those times when, you know, Aberdeen are competitive, Dundee United, Nottingham Forest are winning back-to-back trophies, you know, effectively it was a free-for-all, whereas nowadays I think it's un- not unfair to say that European football is uh, sort of, it's for the elite. Do you know, I, I almost find it difficult to compare because football back in the day when I was growing up to, the, to what football is now is a completely different animal. I think the, the players are a different breed of players now. Um, I think social media has played a huge role in, I think, the negativity of football. If I, I will never forget, and I remember having a conversation about this, um, I will never, ever forget a lad basing his success on how many people followed him on social media. And I, you know, I just, I don't get that. I really don't get that for me. But even though I don't get it, I guess I have to respect it because that is just the modern world. It's just how we are now. Um, you know, when you look at the, the data that is now available to these lads when they play, and not just the lads, but the backroom staff as well, honestly, you, you, need, you need a degree in, in scientific rocket science to understand some of this stuff. It's just, to me, it's a, I think it's a lot of nonsense. Um, you know, I can only go back to when I played football as well. I just, we, we trained three times a week. We turned up, we got told what position we were going to play. We knew who we were playing against. Just go out and play. Um, and then you get coached during the game, you get coached at halftime, and you get coached during the second half, and that was it. Um, there's just so much data these days. It's just mental. And um, I don't know. I just, you know, when I, if you, like, for example, if you, if you look at Willie Miller, look at, the, look at a player like Willie Miller, look at guys like Beresi, look at, you know, because Maldini's been in the headlines recently because his son scored the other day, didn't he? So that's a whole, I think that's what, the third or the fourth generation of Maldini's have now? I think it's at least the third, yeah. Right, okay. So he's obviously um, been spoken about, but when you look at Paolo Maldini as a player, and then you look at some of the, the left-backs that have recently played for AC Milan, I'm just like, how can you compare them? Because they're, they're a different breed of player. They have a different mentality. Any player back then, and Willie Miller once said this to me, because I, I spoke to him about fame. I wanted to speak to him about fame and how he coped with, with fame and celebrity and all that nonsense. And he said to me, I only ever wanted to be judged on one, on two things. The first thing was how many medals I had won. And the second was how many caps I had for Scotland. It's all I wanted to be judged on. And that that really resonated with me. Um, you know, it, for me, it's all about sh- show me your medals and your caps. Um, I know these days they, you know, they throw caps at you. I think it's a lot easier to get a cap these days than, than what it was back then. Because if you look at the, again, the, we go back to the calibre of player. You look at some of the players that didn't get capped for Scotland, John McMaster, 
how did John McMaster never get a cap for Scotland? Um, but then the reason he didn't get a cap for Scotland, and you know, we can we can argue this until we're blue in the face, but you look at the caliber of player that was in front of him, that was getting caps for Scotland all the time. Um, so I, I I do find it really difficult to engage at the moment. You know, I I in, when I was working for B in Sports, I, I was very lucky to have produced the Champions League for many years in the Europa League. And as much as I enjoyed the job, I loved the job. Don't get me wrong, it had nothing to do with the job because I, I absolutely loved it. But I found, I just found the competition boring. I just found it boring. And I found it stale. And I found that it was too business-like. It was too commercial. And I just thought, I don't know. It's, you know, maybe it's what people want these days. Football's an, uh, it's an event now, isn't it? Um, and, I, and I think... There's a type of emotion that I think has been lost on a generation of football fan. Because um, I would find it fascinating to speak to a lad who's, I don't know, a teenager now or someone who's in his early 20s and then try and take them back to that time when we were winning everything, back to my generation that was born in the 70s. They probably feel exactly the same way that I would feel about football now. They, they probably can't relate to what football was like back then. It's one of the, I don't know if it becomes from like following a, what would Aberdeen always be classed as a, a parochial, and I'm using inverted commas here on that one, club. You know that for me, I hark back to the days where okay, well, the champions of England and the champions of Spain can draw each other in the first round of the European Cup, and if they do, it's tough shit. That's what happens. One of them is going out, and it might mean that the champions from I don't know Moldova play the champions of Gibraltar. And one of them is going through. So one of those sides is getting in the next round and, you know, Liverpool or Barcelona ain't making it through. But for me, there's a great romanticism about that, I think. And, and maybe that's maybe that's lacking now in football. Like you say, it's more an event. It's all about the money and it's all about how many times can Man City play PSG or how many times can, you know, Man United play Bayern Munich or whatever in a season. And, you know, for, those, for the supporters of those clubs, maybe that's what they want to see. But I don't know if the wider footballing support wants to see that. Guys, it's an interesting point because if you look at the Champions League structure, for example, if you lose match day one, it doesn't really matter because you got, what, three other games? Uh, five more games, yeah. Yeah, five more games. So you know if you lose your first game, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter because you've got all those other games to make it up. Um, and I think your mindset as a player would be different if you knew it was a, if you lost tonight, you're out, forget it, you're gone. I think that the mindset of a player would be completely different. I think you'd actually see better games of football as well. You know, let's all be honest, the group stages of the Champions League, Europa League is dull as dishwater on the whole. Boring. Um, yeah. There we go. So Ali, just to remind our listeners, the book's out 21st of October, presumably available in all good retailers and some bad ones as well. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yes, yeah, and you can get it through the usual um, internet channels as well. And we're looking to to put the book into the club shop as well, down at Patoji, and um, potentially do a signing as well. So I'm just looking at that at the moment. If I may, there's one final thing which maybe bring up um, Ali as well. You've got an evening with Ian Jess coming up in January. Is that correct? Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, so that's at um, Ardour House Hotel. Um, at the end of January, and that came right out of the blue. I wasn't expecting that at all. Just got an email from the production company and said, "Would you 
would you like to host this event with Ian? And, you know, didn't need to hesitate at all. Um, absolutely buzzing for that. So I'm really looking forward to seeing Ian. I've not seen Ian for a long time. Um, we speak quite often, but I've not, I've, not, I've not seen him for a long time. So I'm really looking forward to um, him telling his story um, that night because, you know, it's all about Ian. It's, you know, I'm just there to, to load the gun. Uh, Ian's there to fire it. And for me, it's all about Ian and making sure that people um, remember the really good times that he had. Because, you know, for me, he is the last of our really great generation of player. Ian Jess, and um, I just can't wait to be in his company. It's going to be an absolutely phenomenal night, and I really hope I do him justice as, as the host of the evening as well. Yeah, well, he was in top form with us a couple of weeks ago. Um, one thing one thing to say, do not offer him rosé wine. Not a fan. Certainly not if it's the three euros for a bucket version. That's the way it goes. Yeah, keep that in mind. So, uh, yeah, the, the three of us will be there. How are you? Fantastic. Brilliant. Right, great. Yeah, yeah, we've got it sorted out, so we're all, we're all uh, really looking forward to that. So yeah, we'll maybe just round things off with one final question. And it's a question that we've asked to everyone that we've had the, the pleasure of interviewing. And the question is, what does Aberdeen Football Club mean to you? It's everything. It's, Aberdeen Football Club has and will continue to be my, my hobby, my love, my passion. You know, Pataudry was my second home for years and years and years. It was where... You know, our family bonded. It's, it, it was our common ground. It was our uh, it was our escape. It's really difficult to, to, to describe sometimes because it really, it, the club is everything to me. Apart from my family, it's the one true love in my life. You know, obviously my family is number one priority and always will be. But outside of my family, Aberdeen's my one true love. It's, uh, I don't know what I would do without it. I can't be honest. And I, I can't ever imagine supporting any other club. You know, I've had soft spots for football clubs down in England, Manchester United, obviously, because of the tie-in with Sir Alex. And a soft spot for Arsenal for the for a while. But, you know, nowhere near, nowhere near the levels that I have for Aberdeen. And um, no matter what happens, my love for that football club will never, ever diminish. Never. So it's everything to me. Ali Begg, top man, thanks for joining us on the ABZ Football Podcast. The book, Aberdeen European Nights, is out on the 21st of October. Pre-order your copy now. Ali, thanks very much. Stan free. Thanks, guys. And that wraps up this week's episode of the ABZ Football Podcast. Thanks for joining us, and please remember to like, subscribe, follow, whatever, on your podcast player of choice. Join us next week for episode 13 of the ABZ Football Podcast, where we'll preview our crucial SPFL Premiership fixture against Dundee. We'll also take our usual look at the women's team and our youth setup before we round things off with an exclusive interview with a player who departed Pataudry in the summer before calling time on his career at the young age of 27. It's an interview not to be missed as we sit down with Tommy Hoban to discuss his career, his time at Aberdeen, his relationship with Derek McInnes, his take on Stephen Glass and the thought process in deciding to call time on his career. We'll look forward to seeing you then. Stand free. This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast was sponsored by Archer Knight. 
With diving technical support, managing bespoke projects or recruitment, Archer Knight are consultants to companies across the energy sector spectrum, whether you're an operator, contractor or in the supply chain. Backed by industry specialists with decades of experience at the highest level, Archer Knight serves as your trusted partner to help you with your tactical operations and strategic decision making. Find out more at www.archerknight.com.